it's gonna be a great year for leah williams comics about blondes with huge knockers yeah if that's what you're in the market for <laughs> well boy howdy x-men x-men in the 21st century evil mutants led by magneto aim to destroy the world only hope is X-Men. Welcome to Cerebro, the X-Men podcast where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of Homo Superior. I'm your host, Connor Goldsmith, and with me today is returning guest Leah Williams, currently the writer of Exterminators with artist Carlos Gomez. Leah, how are you today? I'm great. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming back on. This is a character I have wanted to do for some time, and a couple different people have asked me about her, but I knew Exterminators was coming, and I wanted to wait until the right time for the bomb to go off. We are here to talk about Tabitha Smith, a.k.a. Tabby, a.k.a. Boom Boom, a.k.a. Time Bomb, a.k.a. Boomer, a.k.a. Meltdown, it's been a long journey, but she's pretty securely back to Boom Boom now, uh, which is probably her most classic. I was always fond of Meltdown, not the era, but I think the idea of Tabitha Smith calling herself Meltdown is really it's funny. It's got layers. Yeah, because yeah. like, you think about it for a second, you're like, a nuclear meltdown. She's like, I'm cool now. It's the 90s. But also, you're constantly having an emotional meltdown. So that's fun. Yeah, yeah. But the era was not enormously well-loved, so I'm not shocked that she went back to Boom Boom. We'll get there when we get there first. It has been almost exactly a year since your first visit to the show to talk about Ayana Rasputina. That is one of the most popular episodes of this show, just FYI. Oh, nice. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's consistently in like the top five. Celine is far and away the breakout hit of Cerebro. That episode went viral on TikTok. So the kids love Celine now. Just FYI yeah. to the X office. The kids are craving more Celine. <laughs> they are furious Making that Hope shot her. They want her back. I, mean, I was like, guys, coming back is her whole thing. She'll be fine. She was doing yeah, it before Krakoa. There's nothing to worry about. And now she's just going to be horny for a new redhead. Yeah. Which is basically all she does is be horny for redheads who try to kill her. That's when she's at her Classic most Classic X-Men storyline. Yeah. So yeah. she'll be fine. But in the meantime, you have been a busy bee. When we talked last time, you were in the middle of Trial of Magneto, which was a big event comic. What was it like for you? We were really just starting out. You were like, keep an eye on that orchard. Like Wanda's up to something, but we hadn't, <laughs> we hadn't gotten through it yet. The Ileana episode is actually the reason why I purchased a professional recording mic because I heard... <laughs> how fuzzy and indistinct my audio was on that and i was like never again she's looking very chic she is wearing a very boom boom look she's got the pigtails going it says shit show in pastel there's kind of a my t-shirt happening yeah on oh not in the pigtails right on her uh on her t-shirt <laughs> it says that sorry guys your hair is less blue than it was last time you've got yeah natural. yeah this is my natural color. Yeah. Who knew that I was kind of a redhead? I didn't. I haven't seen my natural color since I was like 14. I was just thinking it's like kind of surprisingly auburn. I was expecting it's, it to it's be like auburn, more brown. Yeah. So was I. It's kind of a like tarot the hellion 
color a little bit. Although yeah, she's sometimes yeah. very red because it's a comic book, but like in yeah. the old <laughs> stuff, it was more like a brown red. Or like, you know, my King Richard Madden is an Auburn king. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Call me Richard if you're listening. I don't know. This is not an Eternals <laughs> podcast. Oh, okay. Well, this is a good dumb blonde moment. I You said that and I was like, why? Is that, are you going by that now? I thought you were giving me an imperative command. Just no, now. I meant call me on the, <laughs> yeah. on the phone. We have some mutual yeah. friends. He knows how to reach me. He does not, but oh, would, yeah. in my fantasy, he, we do have mutual. Never mind. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> Where were we? Oh, the mic is pink and matches the outfit. It's all very cute. I'm Thank you. The Thank whole... you very much vibe i've been super excited about this discussion so i put on like my most pastel core bimbofication boom boom look with like hair pom-poms and earrings that are little locks and keys because you know boom boom because she's a thief i didn't even yeah. see that oh those are cute yeah. <laughs> thank you thank you that's the most interesting well we're getting ahead of ourselves but that is the most interesting thing about boom boom to me specifically is her backstory as a street kid which is something that a lot of comic book characters have but it's rarely tackled in a gritty way the way that i think it was with her yeah there's a lot more of like oliver twisty kind of like capers and with her it's well i'm a teen runaway who was forced to do survival sex work and steal for a living and now i'm a superhero i just always find that interesting and i'm sure you have a lot of thoughts on that and we'll get there now that it's in the rear view how do you feel about trial what are your thoughts on it i think we were two issues in when we did our recording but we might have even it might have even only been one yeah i I don't think about it much now. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> That's how work is sometimes, right? Yeah. And sort of the, the biggest get from that event was the reconciliation between Scarlet Witch and mutants that yes. are no longer at odds now. And a big reason for that is Wanda creates this thing called the waiting room, mm -hmm. which is essentially the mutant Elysian fields. When you die, you go into the waiting room and you get to interact with others and your loved ones can commune with you. Your living loved ones can commune with you with the aid of a telepath should they so desire. Oh, so that's it. These are the things it hasn't been explored in depth yet on page. So I'm curious as to like your intention of its mechanics, basically. Yeah, I deliberately left it really ambiguous at the ending of trial of magneto just because there's like a space issue and also because this wasn't the book to really explore the waiting room and instead some of my colleagues are actually going to be expanding on it and exploring it further in some really like interesting and dynamic ways well it feels like a natural thing for legion of x to explore at some point because of all the astral plane stuff and then with x-men red one of the big drivers of the early plot that I found intensely moving was Magneto essentially losing the will to do anything for a while because of the realization that the waiting room gave him, which is that his daughter was never a mutant. And there's something, it's just a very interesting move. I think Ewing's a genius. I mean, I think Al is maybe he the is, best in the yeah, game right legitimately. now. Legitimately. Period. But he did something that I think is really interesting, which is that for Magneto, his Judaism and his mutantness have always kind of been the same thing. Yeah. And so to him, of course, my daughter's a mutant because it would just pass down naturally that way. It's intrinsic to my identity. Right. 
she is of my identity as well. But yeah. the X gene isn't that literal. Now, of course, his wife wasn't. So the Zodics might have opinions on all kinds of things. But guess what? My mother wasn't Jewish either. And I'm Jewish and they can call me if they have a problem with it. <laughs> Someone said to me once on Twitter, they were like, well, but Polaris's mother wasn't Jewish. I said, neither was mine. Do you have a problem with that? And he was like, oh, no, absolutely not. I was like, cool. Glad we had this talk. Good chat. Good chat. But yeah, no. So the idea that suddenly, oh, I did all of this on some level in memory of my child that humans murdered. And it turns out she was human. And now my whole worldview is fucked. And the waiting room is what revealed that because, of course, she died decades before Cerebro. So there was no way to check. Oh, yeah. That's another aspect of the waiting room. It's not just mutant Elysian fields, but every mutant who never saw their X gene manifest, every person who died before their mutant gene activated, they are also in the waiting room. That's the part I find a little tricky just because previously it's been pretty hard to... It's almost like now we can test for it. But I guess the mutants are the only ones who can and the person has to be dead. So it's not quite as... Yeah. I think back to that Peter David story in the early 90s where like the abortion clinic is claiming they can test fetuses for the X gene and stuff. And I'm like, that could get really... <laughs> but I guess you can't test them before they're born. They have to have died. So it's right. not quite Right, and because it's Scarlet Witch... She's the architect of the waiting room. What's happening is she's kind of collapsing space and time and finding alternate realities where this person was not killed for being a mutant, where they didn't die of something at a young age. And she's pulling their potential over into the waiting room instead. Interesting. Like, imagine if Cerebro could scan the multiverse well that's i think been a point of confusion also for readers sometimes and again these are all questions that are left open on purpose obviously but right i was like does this mean they can resurrect the age of apocalypse people like can they resurrect shard now of course the shard we knew was a hologram made from her brain waves and wasn't the real shard who died in the future so that would present its own problems but that's a side note for a shard episode which this is not it opens a lot of questions about, like, who can we bring back now? Do they have to have existed in a parallel time to the present and past, basically? is my question. Like, how does the future factor in, is, I guess, my question. Uh, the future doesn't factor okay. into the That solves room. so many problems, so thank you. That was, like, my number one. I'm, like, because I am famously too gay to understand time travel. It is merch of this <laughs> podcast with Rachel Summers on it, because that's why she went to the wrong timeline. She's fine now. She's figured it out, but initially she was too gay. To understand yeah. she's had to do a lot of work cable as a bisexual can understand time travel it's it's a gift if you're not 100 percent gay you can sort of figure it out on your own <laughs> you don't really need to be taught but anyway good okay if the future doesn't factor in that answers a lot of my questions because i was just like what about 2099 like what about all of this stuff especially now that steve's bringing all that in no not yet it's it's accumulative though so like as newer mutants in the present or unrealized mutants we'll call them are brought into existence like north star's child is i guess the yes yes the baby that's now at the end of trial they reveal yeah yeah, yeah. that actually provoked some discussion because in the chuck austin run Husk tells Nurse Annie Gazakanian that mutants can't get HIV. So, so now. I think the way that it would have been deus ex machina 
is by saying, oh, well, you know, she was an infant and her ex gene hadn't activated. activated. activated right, right. Yeah. But does, after she's been resurrected on Krakoa, is that something they're going to have to deal with? Um, I guess it's up to a writer, whoever tackles them next, but. I mean, I think it would, if I were writing the story, it would be a matter of like personal autonomy because that's Krakoa's whole thing. Yeah, it's just hard when she's a baby. Right, right. <laughs> Maybe bring her back 12 and ask her. <laughs> well, in this case, he goes to the legal guardian, which is Northstar. Mm -hmm. So it would be up to him. And I think he would say, no, <laughs> help my daughter, please. Right, let's delete that <laughs> since it killed her last time. Yeah. Well, I'm interested to see whenever I am a noted hater of superheroes having babies. I actually right before that happened said in the North Star episode, I hope that nobody gives them a baby. And so people always send me that like they got a baby. And I'm like, listen, <laughs> it's a theoretical babies I'm opposed to. If a baby in the story, were... I just think the Shogo problem is often a problem, which is that Jubilee's now had an infant for like seven or eight years because time can't pass too much. Now, luckily, he's now a dragon in fairyland, which is helpful. Yeah. He's being babysat by totally great babysitters Normal. at the time of Exterminators, because Exterminators <laughs> yeah. and Knights of X run kind of in parallel temporally is my, because there were delays, yeah, right? Yeah. So it's right. So it's something that Teeny and I, Teeny Howard, writer of Knights of X for those of you who oh, don't the know, listeners um, of this podcast know. Okay, oh, okay, okay. I refer to <laughs> Teeny and Vita by first name. That a is lot, fine to constantly. do on this podcast. Also, actually, <laughs> okay, okay, let okay. me just pause you before we go any further. Hello, Zella gang. It's time to activate. Betsy Braddock, Captain Britain number one, was announced at New York Comic Con between last episode and this episode. It is coming out in February. I want you to call your local comic shop today and if you're gonna forget because you have adhd like me pause this episode go do this right now and then come back call your local comic shop and ask for it in physical as a pre-order please there's a peach momoko variant if you're into those i know a lot of people are and also obviously and also mine <laughs> please pre-order exterminators two through five at your local comic shop if you haven't already because pre-orders in physical are the best way to support any creator that you love even something that is solicited as a mini it supports the creator if the sales track is good it also shows the company that there's an interest in the characters that the writer is using so that's always something Absolutely. worth doing yeah. too it's your money but oh, <laughs> if you want to see certain characters especially in a franchise like x-men that's so huge it's just always good to tell sales this character is popular oh absolutely in any case, sorry, we're back now, but I'm very excited about that. I'm very excited about everything everybody in your office is doing. I am loving Exterminators. Thank you. Thank it you. It is a delight. Oh, what I was going to say is when I brought up Teeny is that... Um, you guys were planning out the parallelism of the books. Right, Jubilee. right. Like we needed to free up Jubilee from her responsibility of Shogo so that she could be a part of Exterminators and... You know, Teeny not only like rearranged stuff from Excalibur and Knights of X to kind of hand Jubilee off from that cast over into Exterminators. I've been working on Exterminators for a long time, mm -hmm. but also we figured out Shogo being fostered in Otherworld. Yeah, no, you talked about Exterminators without saying what it was, like in vague details. During the magic episode, we talked about it. You said that you were writing a dream project with some of your favorite characters and that you were oh, really yeah, excited yeah. to talk That's about it, this. but you couldn't yet. And then like 
seven months later you were able to talk about it. It took a while. The thing about comics that people so don't long. understand <laughs> is that I think you probably wrote like four of the five issues before it was announced at all, right? Something like that. Like it's yep. so far yep. ahead of schedule. Mm -hmm. And that's something for Twitter to know because there's only so much you can do if you don't, <laughs> if you're like, please change the story. It's too late, baby. That script was delivered oh, yeah. eight months ago. <laughs> also, I mute everyone who gives me feedback. Not feedback like that, but, but ideas and notes and things, because that's a legal ideas. problem. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I, I just can't look at it for legal reasons. It's to protect you, baby, like not me. I have a mod team in the Discord and they now look at the emails, which God bless them because there's a lot of emails, but they look at the emails because they know that I would like maybe to write at some point and people send in sometimes their like story ideas and things for me to read on the show. And I'm like, I don't want to see that because. Oh, good. That's really 10 good years thinking. from yeah. now. I end up getting to write, well, maybe sooner than that, that would be nice, but you know, I was let's say, say 10 years. Yeah, listen, I'm being modest, but I would like to think sooner <laughs> than that. <laughs> well, I'm working on my first comic, actually. I'm, I'm scripting right now. It's not for Marvel. Oh, hell yeah. I'm, I'm really excited about it. And I'm hoping that that will lead to, uh, to new things. Josh Cornell and I are, uh, are doing <gasps> Amazing. a project together, which I'm really excited about. Another big X-Men fan. And actually, Ariana Mar is lettering it. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah, so that's pretty chic. Friend that's of the exciting. pod, Ariana Mar, commentary. I was like, do you know how much letterers, I mean, you know, but like listeners don't know, letterers are woefully underpaid and we all should campaign. Everyone in comics is underpaid, <laughs> but especially the letterers, in my opinion. And also woefully underappreciated. Well, like... yeah, they're not, I mean, they don't usually get put on the spines or anything. And there's so much of the part mm -hmm. of what makes the book work. I mean, Claremont without Zakowski is not the same book. Yep. That's still true today. Hellions, Excalibur, everything that Ariana's worked on, I have found her sort of fluid style of lettering and sound effect. I was going to say kinetic. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it, that's a great word too. It just, it always feels propulsive even like there's always mm -hmm. something dynamic. Moving. Yeah, yeah. 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 It's really great. She's great. She was like my only choice. I was like, hello. I know you're very busy being someone who actually works for like Marvel <laughs> comics, but I have some sample pages I need lettered. Anyway, more on that as it develops, because I know people are, are eager to hear about that. But the point is, yes, I also now have people sort of sort those out because I don't want to years down the line or months down the line or whenever yeah. have somebody be like, that was an idea. I emailed to your podcast, like, you know, mm -hmm. but also mm -hmm. guys, just blanket statement right now. If you send a story idea to my podcast and then years from now I write something that's similar to the story idea you sent to my podcast, you don't get to sue me. That's I'm just saying right now. You don't get to. Just please don't. <laughs> so anyway, the waiting room was the big shift out of Oh, is that what we were talking about? Prime, you know, yes, we're gonna we're gonna we're back on track. We're back on track. This is what happens when you have like two people with ADHD talking to each other. Mm -hmm. Have you ever seen that viral video of the two automatic trash cans setting off each other's sensors? Yes, that's us right now. I also yeah. like this time I know you. We hadn't met before we did the magic episode. <laughs> so now it's just like I'm much more comfortable and I'm just gonna yammer. But what we were talking about was, yes, the mechanics of the waiting room and specifically the fact that that is what reunited the Scarlet Witch with the mutants in a political sense. Like she's not a mm -hmm. mutant technically, but she is their friend again, or at least not their enemy. Right. I think that she's going to stay pretty cordoned off because she's an Avengers office character. But it's nice to have that beef squashed, if only because it will make all of us fans stop 
yelling at each other about it, which is nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's set up nicely for Steve Orlando's Scarlet Witch Solo, which is launching in January. And you should also pre-order that, pals, if you are keen Oh, absolutely. that. Yeah. I've seen some stuff because I work with Steve and nothing that I shouldn't be allowed to see. I'm Steve's agent and I'm NDA'd and stuff, but it looks, the little I've seen looks absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Sarah Pacelli, you can't really beat that, right? Just incredible. Yeah. <laughs> that's just, that's about as good as it gets. Gorgeous, yeah. Oh, we were talking about Magneto, too. Um, oh, yeah, and the and how the waiting room led into, oh, no, I remember now. We were talking about how your colleagues are going to flesh out the waiting room in their books, in stories that touch on it. And one of those things that I noted was, like, it set the stage for Magneto to realize that Anya had never been a mutant. Yes. And this is something that Al and I collaborated really closely on when I was working on trial because we knew we were building to something with Magneto specifically. So we wanted the handoff to like really set him up nicely for X-Men Red. So like wretched, sad dad Magneto is is what I was doing in Trial of Magneto, mm -hmm. like really emotionally weighted and people don't understand his motives, that kind of thing. That was all done intentionally knowing where his story was going after trial, not just with the waiting room stuff and what's going to happen with that, but what's going to happen with him. Listeners of this podcast, I tell them always, stay caught up because there will be spoilers. He has died in Judgment Day and Storm says to him, like, well, the Scarlet Witch's waiting room, like, you can come back anyway. And he says, only if I want to, and I don't. And that, I think, is also a key element of this development. And that's something that it's important to, like, put on the page as well. So it's nice that that was there. One of the things you did in trial that in retrospect, as a Polaris fan, I find very clever, and I liked it at the time, I told you so, I think, last time we were on the show, but she and Eric are really nasty to each other in that first issue, because sometimes family does that when it fights. They know how to push each other's They buttons. know the worst thing they can say to the other exactly. person. And for him, it's you're crazy. And for her, it's you let your daughter die. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> like they know it, they're so, they are both magnets with repelling forces. She's the North Pole and he's the South Pole is how I've exactly. always seen it. She's Polaris and he's the Savage Land as is Zaladane. And they know exactly how to hurt each other the most. Mm -hmm. Like they, they go for the throat when they're fighting. And of course, at the time, Polaris didn't know that, you know. Anya couldn't come back or that the waiting room would happen or any of that. Or that Eric also had like ulterior motives in in that fight and what he was doing, drawing attention to himself. He and Wanda were working together. She didn't know any exactly, of that. Exactly, exactly. It's a good beat because, I mean, Spencer Ackerman and I then talked about it when he was on the show after that. Amazing episode. Oh, thank you. He's always fun. Did you hear the Fenris one that we just put up? That was last week. It's absolutely- I haven't yet. I Yeah. <laughs> I was so nervous about it and everyone's been emailing us like this is maybe the best episode of your show. They were like, it's so oh funny. God. How did you make Nazi siblings who fuck each other like an okay Nazi thing to talk about for four funny. hours? <laughs> we did it on Rosh Hashanah, basically, like between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And you're both Jewish. Yes. And Spencer made me promise that we would finish recording it before Kol Nidre so that we would then atone by fasting for anything that we said during the episode. Amazing. Yes. That's incredible. Which we did. And now no one can cancel us and it's fine. <laughs> 
that's the rules of our religion. You're not going to be discriminatory, are you, listeners? Anyway, no, the point is, I was talking about how I'm really enjoying Lorna's, like, Jewish-American princess characterization that I think Jerry Mm -hmm. really crystallized. (laughs) He was like, yeah, and, like, the worst thing you can say to your, like, Holocaust survivor grandfather, or in this case, father, is, like, what about the relatives you allowed to die? And she knows that. Yeah. It's a very specific thing, and it's kind of unforgivable, but... So is what he says to her. So it's a good beep, in my opinion, because it estranges them at exactly the right moment for him to feel like he has nothing left in the world. Because I always, I identify a lot with Lorna and I feel for her in that she can never be Anya who died before she was ever born. And that's the daughter he wants, right? It's this really deep thing, but once she invoked that, he was able to sort of close himself off to her. So then when he's dying, it's really all about Anya, which I think makes sense, but underlines also Polaris's inferiority complex about their relationship. Yep. Yep. Exactly. I just love both those characters. And I think everything that Al has been doing is absolutely brilliant. And I was really impressed with how it was teed up from trial honestly so good work to you too yeah we did that on purpose i'm I'm glad to hear that we pulled it off worked for me if we never see magneto again i mean it's he's a marvel ip so at some point i'm sure he will return because they always do but at the moment if we never saw him again i would feel like from uncanny 150 to x-men red whichever number that was and judgment day whatever number that was i would be good with that like it's just such a complete arc so smart al is the best there is at going like hmm what's the narrative over 50 years i'm going to just oh, yeah, thread yeah. that for you <laughs> like <laughs> he when he first came to the x office teeny and vita and i were amazed at how similar al's process is to ours like his creative process we would talk about it in our discord server like he makes playlists too and he goes continuity dumpster diving like this is amazing and that's like really intrinsic to al's storytelling the fact that he does these deep dives in continuity but he always does something new and fascinating with them yeah he finds stuff that has been overlooked for literally 50 60 years yeah and he's like no, this is There's like something here, though. Story yeah. mine here. Yeah, yeah. That's what he calls it, too. Story mining. So good. Because then it's not comics about comics. It's comics building on something that the earlier comic never got to do. Yeah, and to me, that is like with. the true gold standard of writing comics for existing IP, like with Marvel mm-hmm. and DC, a place where you're dealing with 80 years of continuity. At our best, we're torchbearers. We should be continuing on a storyline, but also making it additive and giving room for the next person to pick up threads. And I've really learned a lot about this through working with Al and seeing him very mindfully laying down seeds for future writers. Yeah, this is just such a potent example because if you've never read Uncanny X-Men 150, which is about Magneto having a crisis of conscience because he thinks he has killed a little Jewish girl, Kitty Pride, like his daughter, and also features a really important scene where Storm comes upon him sleeping and could kill him and thinks about it and decides not to. You don't have to have read that for the X-Men Red story to be great. But if you have read it, the 
end of the story being him dying in Storm's arms, thinking about his daughter who he lost and how he can never get her back and giving the responsibility of his burdens to Storm is the perfect... It's just a really beautiful grace note. Yeah. It just wraps it up so perfectly. It's so good. And I can't wait to see where Storm goes from here because I... I'm astounded by how Al is writing that character. I think that's a really tricky character to get right. Yeah. And I think Al is killing it. Oh, he is. Absolutely. But enough about Al. He's not here. When he was on the show, this is how you know he is that type of nerd. He was like, I want to break your record. What's the longest episode? And we recorded for like a really long time. (laughs) (laughs) So with Trial in the rear view, you started working on Exterminators. What was that like? Obviously, Grindhouse of X is sort of the core concept but Mm -hmm. how did you choose the cast how did the mini come together and then that I think will segue us into talking about Tabby perfect okay so I'm gonna backtrack by a couple years and give you the whole context because that's how long I've been working with this gosh not even two years it's more like I forget about pandemic years and I just kind of love them together like yeah just a blur right so it's actually been more like three and a half, four years, something like that. But at an X-Men writer's retreat in New York, where it's like all the X-Men writers are there and the editors, and we're coming up with our stories for the next few years and pitching stuff while we're there. I was sitting next to Jerry Duggan and he started talking about this concept that he never really pursued about Dazzler as a vampire slayer. And I like, shut down the conversation immediately like there's kind of you know different conversations going around the huge conference table where we're all sitting and I immediately shut everything down and was just like what that is amazing why didn't you like you have to do that Jerry that's amazing that's the best thing I've ever fucking heard that is brilliant and he was like Leah Leah it's yours (laughs) and you know it's it's of course not like future main title x-men writer jerry duggan had an excess of spare time where he could work on dazzler the vampire slayer so that's what we started calling it dazzler the vampire slayer and in its earliest incarnation it was going to be kind of a vertical scrolling comic for um for the unlimited app the app yeah kind of like alias where dazzler has to get in these different outfits and that kind of thing but i wasn't really meshing with that and then during trial of magneto i started looking at this book dazzle the vampire slayer as like my dangling carrot it is my reward my blue sky thinking because trial of magneto it was such a big book it was a lot of pressure Mm -hmm. to financially perform well in sales and that kind of thing and for someone like me who's only been doing this five years i mean x factor was what your second ongoing first First, because, oh, because Mary Jane, that was a limited, right? The Mary Jane? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. so that was your first ongoing. That's the thing that I think a lot of people don't, like Excalibur was Teeny's first ongoing, too. A lot of people are really learning on the job here, which is scary, but it's created some great comics. Trial by fire. Yeah, but it's, I mean, I think it's exciting to see new talent get that opportunity. Or not new talent, but talent that hasn't done it yet, you know? Absolutely. So I had... Dazzle the Vampire Slayer just sort of like percolating in the back of my head the whole time that I was working on Trial of Magneto. And during 
our Krakoan council meetings, these Zoom meetings the ex-office has every other week where we all get together and we talk about who's working on what, what's going on, making sure we're all on the same page. I kept like joking, but not jokingly telling my colleagues that I want Dazzler the Vampire Slayer to be tits and ass. Like I don't want to use a single brain cell to write it. <laughs> and then I told them like, I want it to be a grindhouse book. I I'm switching genres here. I want to do grindhouse. That kind of was a hit with the room. It went over really well. And we started referring to it as grindhouse of X because when it no longer was Dazzler the Vampire Slayer, it was like unnamed Grindhouse X book. Make it a team book, right, yeah. Right, right. Then Jonathan Hickman came up with Grindhouse of X when we were just kind of like shooting the shit on a Zoom call. So that's what it's been called. And I actually want to do a little bit of show and tell here. So for every new gig that I get, I get, and I got teeny in the habit of doing this too, I get a new notebook. Specifically. You showed us the trial one last time, or you showed right, me. They don't right. get to see it because there's no video. No. And I'm going to show you my exterminator's notebook now. Thank you. It's just as feral as you would expect it to be. And of course, Grindhouse of X is Ooh, what we it's were calling like, it It's then. fancy. It's like, this isn't like we bought a molluskine. This is like made. Like it says her name on the front and Grindhouse of X. Yeah, I get custom notebooks for every new project. And it's filled with hentai stickers. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like vintage movie posters and then anime waifus because that's that's the yeah, vibe honestly this is giving it's giving 4chan right right yeah, yeah yeah and i'm looking for some of my favorite spreads so teeny and i are really into like stickers and layouts and that kind of thing now and there was one night when um i oh, am like we share <laughs> there's guys there is i have to be clear not every page, but almost every page has at least one tits out anime girl, like sometimes with like naughty parts visible. I'm just like, I'm taking it in, but it is very kill a kill vibes up in this notebook. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> um, we have an upskirt shot. That's more classic. That's like Uratsuki Doji, like 80s head time. Not that yeah, yeah. I'm an expert on these things, but. Here's one layout that I'm really proud of. It has like washi tape and contrasting pink and black and then contrasting <laughs> anime waifus where there's like one. There's an anime waifu and then also like an anatomical drawing of a scorpion. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's because this is a transcript <laughs> of a conversation that I had with Teeny, like word for word, because for whatever reason, this is my meditative process when I was writing that night and she's a Scorpio. She sure is. <laughs> So, yeah. We do a water sign fusion dance where I'm the sensitive Pisces and she's the Scorpio. And that's important oh, hell to yeah. our process. Yeah, this is still the same conversation that we oh, were having. Oh, well, there's Chibiusa and Hataru. That's, like, <laughs> at least not porn. But there's more. There's some more porn. I But oh, I'm yeah, enjoying yeah, yeah. porn. It's just, it's not, I, I. it's just a funny thing to see in a Marvel writer's notebook. And this is why I like seeing... <laughs> newer talent get a chance to do to take big swings like this i mean that's part of what's been so exciting about this era is all of you are doing so many big weird things with these characters that we all love and it's fun to see where it all lands god i want to read yeah. that i just want to page through it 
yeah, there's so much to it. I think this is my like most filled notebook to date. And it's partly because by the time I was getting this, I had figured out my process, Mm -hmm. like everything before this point was really kind of like, I, I have this giant oversized dry erase board die like a dice yeah. and I write different things that I've done to help me get my head in the game find my headspace that kind of thing and then I would like flip the dice and whatever <laughs> it rolled on it would be like okay we are writing on the window today I have a giant floor to ceiling window where I outline sometimes I stand there and outline or I make playlists or da, 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 like mm-hmm. a bunch of different things. But finally I have ironed out my process and it involves a shit ton of stickers and washi tape because I need the serotonin and like colorful pens and that kind of thing. And I outline analog. I just write everything out, any like random thoughts that I have, that kind of thing. So that is the inception of this notebook that notebook is definitely more robust than the trial trial which i remember and it was it was beautiful but it was much more organized and this i mean as befits this book is a lot more exactly yeah boom 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 one might even say and boobs a lot of yeah so that 45 minutes into recording brings us to Tabitha Tabby Smith, a.k.a. Boom Boom, a.k.a. lots of other codenames, as I said at the beginning. Tabby is the last member of the classic New Mutants to be covered on this podcast. I said that Rain was the last one, and people were like, well, what about Boom Boom? like, okay, well, Richter and Boom Boom technically are classic New Mutants, but they don't really join until the very end. And I think of Boom Boom more as an X-Force character. Yes, yeah. And before that, as a Simonson X-Factor character. They're X-Terminators to me, which is why the title of the mini is actually really nice if you're a Boom Boom fan, because that's the team that she named back in Mm -hmm. 1988. I mean, after the insane thing that X Factor was doing where they pretended to be mutant terrorists, and but it's fine because they were listening to Cameron Hodge and that was a mistake. You know, sometimes your old friend from boarding school has an idea and you listen to him because you have affection for your friendship that you had in boarding school and it's just kind of a mistake long term i love this book i think it's the best thing you've done at marvel thank you jerry duggan actually said the same thing he said that this is my magnum opus and uh, i use no brain cells to write it so i don't know what that says about either of us but that means that it's just you're not overthinking it though you know it and sometimes id. right it and sometimes when we overthink like, the word lizard brain it's harder yeah, yeah. I think that something about it being so direct and honest is what makes it so good. I mean, the part where Dazzler says, Jubilee, how are you doing? Jubilee, what are you doing? And she's like, my best, okay? My fucking best. Like, I've been, I've seen that memed now a lot because it's a very relatable sentiment. It's actually a smaller version of the comics about comics thing. Like you don't have to know that her baby's been lost in other world, but if you do, exactly, exactly, (laughs) it adds to the scene if you know that. But that's what's informing that moment where we pick up with Jubilee. 
well okay before we get into it like the way that this cast came about is first it was dazzler and then it was dazzler and jubilee and then it was dazzler and jubilee and boom boom because i knew boom boom wasn't doing anything and then laura kinney became available through x-men and children of the vault the x-men roster shifting yeah exactly and uh, jerry loves laura he's always looking out for her he wants her to be like featured prominently and that kind of thing so he was like all right laura's coming out of this book we need to find another place for her and immediately i was like dibs dibs well because you I need a dibs. straight man with that cast exactly. and laura can do that exactly the way i describe it is laura kinney and exterminators is like that pinch of salt you add to brownie batter to make it all the sweeter Right. Like she and is a necessary component. She's the one who can kind of look at the camera like Jim from The Office and be like, are you seeing this? Like everybody's being yeah, crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a necessary part of a book that is a comedy book at the end of the day. I mean, it has, I'm sure, heavier bits that will twist the knife later on, but. Not really. See, I love that. I love to hear it. I'm like, I'm sure that there will be at some point like a punch in the gut. But if there isn't and we're just going to have fun for five issues, I love that for us. It is cheesecake because that is what I wanted to write. That is what I'm having fun writing. And like I I didn't want to bring emotional turmoil into it, especially <laughs> not after a trial. Yeah, you're like, I just did a you know? lot of that. I, I like needed to rinse my brain. Well, and X Factor was always about trauma too. Like I feel like you've been in the trauma House I've been in the trauma time. trenches like, for yeah, a few years to, now. Time to yeah. step out and just like, you know, shake your tits for beads is kind of the vibe of Exterminators. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what this book is for me. Shaking my tits for Mardi Gras beads. And it is a delight to write. It is so much fun. And while the action escalates and the story escalates, it maintains the tone consistently throughout and the the dynamic between the women remains the same no matter how shitty their situation gets. I like it because there's something very funny about Dazzler who's a little bit older than them. She's a mom friend for sure. Like hanging out with these, like, because obviously age discourse is not real. It's Marvel Comics. Like any Marvel or DC book, it's like, how old are these? Oh, speaking of DC, by the way, and speaking of tits... You, uh, it was just announced that your Comic-Con are going to be writing a Power Girl arc. Yeah, DC. yeah. Representation is important. Yeah, it did not occur <laughs> to me to bring it up because this is not a DC podcast, but is also a thing that's happening. And so everybody look that up. Leah Williams writing Power Girl is a moment and I'm excited I, uh, for yeah. it. And you should pre-order that too. So proud to be the first woman writing Power Girl who has bigger tits than she does. Truly, representation matters. Yeah, I mean... You know, not to objectify you, but <laughs> they're bigger than my head. It's okay. It's like, well, it's a letter that is not, uh, you can't buy that at a standard shop, I would imagine. It's at the oh shit end of the alphabet. Yeah. yeah like we're in like, you know, double Q or something at this point. <laughs> close. Uncomfortably close. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm looking forward to that. I think that that's a perfect character for you. I mean, the idea that Teenie's writing Catwoman and you're writing Power Girl is very funny to me because I'm just like, yes, it, that tracks. That's that's absolutely the vibe, yeah. yeah. And my tradition of writing chaotic blonde characters, chaotic blonde women continues. And is Vita still writing Static? I'm not sure, are actually. Are they taking a break? I'm not a huge DC reader, so I don't keep like super tabs, but they were for a minute writing Static. I just feel like mm -hmm. all three of you have gotten really fun fitting gigs at DC. 
Anyway, so the point is that I was making is just like age discourse aside, Dazzler is definitely like a generation up from the Jubilees and Boo Booms of the world. Yes. And certainly Laura also. So the idea that everybody else is like Dazzler's kind of a mess. And so the people she ends up hanging out with are like five or six years younger than her is really funny. Too. Like it's that's something that it's a very specific type of crisis to be in where like I need to go out with my besties. <laughs> They're all in their mid 20s and I'm 31. Like that's. As someone soon to turn 35, that's a moment that I think a lot of people in their early 30s have. So it's relatable to see it in the pages of a Marvel comic. Oh, absolutely. And that moment where we first see Jubilee, she's like in kind of a, a dirty tank top and panties and watching TV on the couch. That's when Dazzler calls her. So the fact that Shogo has just left for Otherworld to be fostered over there for magical reasons, I imagine Jubilee to be in this sort of like aimless aleatory state right now where she's moving without purpose well she's been defined as a mom for so many years now in the comics that it's nice to see her get a chance to do something else she's a bit you know she's feeling but for her that would be shocking because she likes being a mom (laughs) you know and now (laughs) it's like well what do i do if i don't have my baby here yeah so when allison asks her like what are you doing right now she takes it as an accusation. She's like, my best. I'm I'm doing my best. And I'm glad that Dazzler's tone came across in in that and people are memeing it and and getting the joke. Oh yeah, everybody's just like, we're all just doing our best. The other thing is obviously, as I'm sure you've seen, there are about 50 different versions of the boom boomification meme at this point. Amazing. So fucking amazing. Especially since I literally pitched an idea for a variant cover. That was a bimbofication spectrum ranging from at least bimbo, Laura, next in line is Dazzler, <laughs> then Jubilee, then Boom Boom. And sure enough, he sent me fan art of the that bimbofication is exactly that. spectrum. Yes. That is exactly that order. I posted it in the Slack just so I could crow about it to my coworkers. Like, remember like, this variant cover idea I had? Remember how agree. right I am all the time? Like, <laughs> I I was so ready to, to take my victory lap on that one. We'll get into my approach to Boom Boom and Exterminators at some point, but the the bimbofication spectrum is very important to me in my process with her and is literally like verbally mentioned in Exterminators issue mm-hmm. one, where Jubilee is just roasting the fuck out of Boom Boom's outfit. Which goes back to their first interactions in Extinction Agenda. Like they've always had yes. kind of a frenemies vibe. Yes, yes. Like they love each other, but they also kind of can't stand each other. And that's fun. It's like, it's like family. Yeah, they're like sisters, you know? know? Exactly, exactly. They love each other, but also can't stand each other. (laughs) Well, I think that for Boom Boom, it's sort of a narrative awareness thing where it's like Boom Boom ate Skids' lunch and then Jubilee ate Boom Boom's lunch. And so there's this moment where Boom Boom is kind of looking at Jubilee like, I could have had it all, and then you showed up. Like, (laughs) you're partying with Wolverine, and I'm stuck in this. Oh, I have so many things I want to say about this. Like, the comparison between (laughs) Boom Boom and Jubilee is really important. Also, the reason why Boom Boom never became a Wolverine protege, even though she's a teenage runaway, like a teenage girl runaway, and that's his whole thing. He was in the Outback at the time. Like, they don't line up. Yeah, and also, I think that she wouldn't take his shit. 
I think that other people would because they have patience and they understand he's not the best communicator. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Boom Boom is not patient. She is abrasive. And her, something that we see a lot in her early appearances, her response, her approach to conflict resolution at every turn is using her time bombs like yeah. explode things and leave <laughs> exactly it doesn't matter what's being discussed or argued about if it's small if it's big you know there's going to be a bomb about it maybe it goes down the back of your pants and you end up mooning an entire crowd of people maybe it's going to go down the back of your shirt and it's going to ruin your uniform maybe it's going to go into a lock like this is that was her response. And can you imagine Wolverine dealing with that? No, not at all. It would never happen. No, and it makes sense that instead the father figure she bonds with is Cable. Cable, exactly. That works much better, but because it's a team and because his attention is mostly on Cannonball, she doesn't get the like Wolverine sidekick spotlight that a character like Kitty Pride or Jubilee gets. Will Talk about her trajectory at length in a minute. For people who are not familiar with this character, Boom Boom was created by Jim Shooter and Al Milgram, which is super random because she is the viewpoint character in a lot of ways for Secret Wars 2, which Al Ewing referred to on this podcast as Jim Shooter's great American novel. (laughs) People ask me if they should read Secret Wars 2, and I say... You do not have to do that. However, if you are someone interested in Boom Boom, it is pretty key. You have to read issue five. Yeah. Yeah. The fifth issue is really all about her and the Beyonder. She is a teenage runaway. She just left home. Becomes the Beyonder's only friend. She ran away from her abusive father who started beating her because she developed mutant powers. So when we meet her, she has like a black eye and she's on the run and is... 13 years old, scrawny as fuck, precocious, abrasive, vapid, and she encounters the Beyonder and they have this like, there's this Canadian TV show. This is such a left field thing to reference, but there's a Canadian TV show about a homeless dog, like a hobo dog, and just kind of this like lovable, mischievous scamp wandering the countryside. (laughs) And that's immediately what came to mind. Hold on, I'll have to Google it. That's what came to mind when I was reading this issue. Wait, Canadian show, homeless dog. The Littlest Hobo. The Littlest Hobo. That's cute. I always just think of Oliver Twist because the fallen angels of it all with the vanisher is like very Oliver Twist. Which is immediately after this appearance in Secret Wars and like the early X-Factor appearances. Yeah. So I I have some things I want to say about this first appearance and her interaction with the Beyonder. It's like lovable vagrancy and she's on her way to the X-Mansion because she heard about the school and it's like her one goal, like a minor, a child, traveling alone to get to this place where she thinks that she'll be a uh she'll be safe there and they'll Mm -hmm. take her in and that kind of thing so she encounters the beyonder like omniscient omnipotent being and they become friends and keep each other from committing suicide it's a good indicator of how connected she is even as a kid though like she has her ear to the ground because she has heard rumors about a mutant school in westchester new york which is not 
something that the general public is aware of at this time in X-Men comics. Right, right. And I think it's so funny when they finally get there after like much bonding between the Beyonder and Boom Boom. They finally get there and like the X-Men open the front door and Boom Boom starts telling them her situation and they they don't even fucking hear her because they're looking past her to the car. At the Beyonder. The Beyonder is at the wheel. And then they just immediately start attacking him. Like, no dialogue exchange nothing they just immediately go into attack mode and start like wailing on her friend her only friend the only person she has in her life right now and it's like really scary and alienating for her so she like runs crying into the woods and calls the beyonder back because apparently you can like summon him just by saying his name very spiral of the beyonder Oh, yeah. He takes her off for this, like, cosmic adventure where they go to basically a space version of Niagara Falls, like a tourist trap. The Celestials are there and the Beyonder, to amuse Boom Boom, starts a fight with the Celestials because she thought they were statues, like unmoving enormous cosmic statues so the beyonder just kind of like playfully starts a universe ending fight with the celestials to amuse his new little friend which you know freaks her out and she demands to go back to earth and and then she snitches on the beyonder and this is not the first time she's behaved like a little snitch Mm -hmm. uh she she does it again with the vanisher later and is on this kind of mentor figure of ambiguous morality (laughs) to the authorities and uh the avengers come and they end up attacking the beyonder but of course by that point since he's no longer keeping the company of boom boom he too is suicidal and no longer wants to exist wants to unalive himself and at the time that boom boom summons him again into a trap where like the other heroes are waiting he's like boom boom thank god i'm so happy to see you i was like on the verge of you know unaliving myself right when you yeah called for me and that's when the avengers attack and this is after he has convinced her not to kill herself which was her plan when the x-men ignored her at the door and chased after the beyonder instead she was like well if even these people aren't what I've been looking for, then I should just kill myself. And the Beyonder convinces her not to. And then she takes advantage of his suicidal crisis to lure him into a trap for the Avengers. Yes. And this idea of wanting to belong, wanting to feel wanted and important is something that follows Boom Boom for the rest of her narrative trajectory. It is a very important theme to her and something that she's very vulnerable to and she stays vulnerable to it no matter how she's hiding it or the level of bravado she's using to mask it but boom boom's first appearance is really interesting to me because there are so many female characters that when they're first introduced are kind of like flippant and Mm -hmm. presented jokingly but Boom Boom's first appearance is raw as fuck. It's very serious, yeah. Especially for a character who seems frivolous. Yeah, yeah. And she even, when she's talking to the Beyonder about what she's just come from, she's she even kind of like makes a self-deprecating statement along the lines of like, oh, sorry for bringing up 
trauma, you know, like she, she talks about childhood trauma in a really flippant way. And, um, it is just so like bracingly self-aware to see in a comic that came out in what, in 1985, you know? Mm-hmm. And a comic by Jim Shooter, like not to get into details, but he's, more of a socially conservative writer, typically. Yeah, yeah. It's an interestingly sympathetic portrayal of this character. It is. And I I just think it's so interesting how it compares to the introductions of other female characters who are presented without a lot of thought mm-hmm. in the beginning. And I, I can think of a very long roster of X-Men women who fit this description. Where a later writer has to fix it, yeah. Yes, 100%, where a later writer has to come in and fix their origins, make this character be taken seriously, fix their power set, that kind of thing. Like, that didn't happen with Boom Boom. She has always been this yeah, from her first appearance. And I think she's portrayed pretty consistently, too. Well, and I would contrast her directly to Laura Kinney. Yes. Because they're both, as I mentioned briefly earlier, characters who are teen runaways who end up in survival sex work. Or, I mean, as I said in the Laura episode, underage prostitution. Because I wouldn't call it sex work if you're a child, right? Like, you're not working. That's not, that's exploitation. It's trafficking. I think there's a world of difference between how Boom Boom's implied, I mean, we're still under the comics code, like life on the streets is versus the way Laura Kinney was introduced to the comics, which took a lot of work from other writers to then develop. I mean, Erica Schultz was just talking at New York Comic Con about how one of the reasons she wants to revisit Laura's history with an X-23 miniseries is because she loved the character, but when she went back to read a lot of her early stories, she was not thrilled with some of what she read. It's really dark. Yeah, And I think that with Boom Boom, there's a lighter and more respectful hand taken and she never feels objectified. Yes. Yes. I think that is so important. And it isn't until later. That she can become objectified. Yeah. But this early stuff, she's not. Yeah. And it's really humanizing. Mm -hmm. Especially in the context of her friendship with a Beyonder, which also had just gotten out part of the reason he's in this really like detrimental emotional state is he had just gotten out of a, a relationship with dazzler who you know is <laughs> starring I'm alongside sorry. boom boom and exterminators the beyonder is just one of the biggest dwys of this podcast which is a don't worry about it and that's because i simply don't remember most beyonder stories and then people tell me and there aren't that many of them you'd think i could retain like more beyonder information than i do but it's just it just washes out of my brain and then you remind me of something like that i'm like that is in fact 100 percent true yeah <laughs> which i there was forgotten. no room for it in exterminators but i love imagining the them talking about because- it because Right. Well, Dazzler and Boom Boom talking about the Beyonder. Because when the Beyonder is talking about the relationship he just got out of, he describes Allison, you know, that she's a singer and and that kind of thing. But he never actually says her name. Who he's talking about, right. Right. So Boom Boom has no idea of this, like, shared connection with Dazzler. And both of them are very guilty of falling for the wrong men. Well, yeah. 
<laughs> and it's it's just very interesting to me to imagine that interaction. Yeah, no, absolutely. After Secret Wars, Boom Boom is the early X Factor stuff in the Simonson X Factor. I would say Louise Simonson is the writer who really solidifies the character and develops yeah. her further. She is one of the kids that X Factor begins training alongside Skids, Rusty, and eventually Richter, along with Artie and Leech. Artie and Leech, yeah. But they're like little, they're not really training. With Boom Boom, it's because after she runs away from the Beyonder, that's when she ends up on the streets and is recruited by the Vanisher to become one of his little thieves. And this is actually a parallel she has with Storm because Ahmed al-Jabbar was running a similar like kid thieves Oliver Twist kind of vibe thing in Cairo, which is where Storm learned all of her pickpocketing skills. Boom Boom, by nature of her street smart personality and also her power she can make tiny 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 little bombs that's a great power to crack safes for example exactly yeah so she's like living in midtown and which god can you imagine now no (laughs) the fallen angels in midtown i'm like wow not at all the city has changed she's part of this girl gang which vanisher that's weird he's weird he's a weird guy yeah yeah so she gets sick of him and then does what she does in the beginning and snitches on him. Blows something up and leaves. Like, that's sort of right. the vibe, right? <laughs> to uh, X Factor. So they show up. And by that point, she and the Vanisher have, like, reconciled. And he's like, no, 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 it's fine. You can keep your whole earnings now. And she's like, oh, well, I already snitched on you. I already and, called the cops. <laughs> so, uh, so then X Factor shows up and they start chasing after Boom Boom instead of the Vanisher. Like they are hunting this child. She is still a child. They are hunting this child down, and she's like, "I don't want to go with you. Stop." Eventually, I don't remember how it happens, but they they do get her back to the X Mansion, and well, it's not the X Mansion. It's it's uh ship isn't it because it's x-factor oh right right ship yeah yeah yeah. she has this like really antagonistic dynamic right away with hank yes hank cannot stand boom boom and the feeling is mutual Hank hates her and is so fucking rude to her like even when it's not her fault he is awful to her and it's because of her persona like this really She's a vapid, tough girl. She has problems with authority. Creature, right. Despite being from Roanoke, Virginia, for some reason, she is very much a valley girl <laughs> stereotype of the period. Yeah. Also. Yeah. And her design in this era is very clearly based on Madonna and Cindy Lauper. It's like that. Her hair is culture. always like a rhombus. Like it, it is very. She looks angular, like the lucky star Madonna. Like video. a trapezoid. Yeah. yeah. And uh, wearing oversized men's shirts as dresses, that kind of thing. Belted shades. Scrunchies. Yeah. Yeah. The she like has a crush on Bobby. She thinks that he's cute. To me, this like kind of rings true for Boom Boom. The fact that in all of her early appearances, she's a little bit boy crazy. But I love that it's mostly for gay men. Yeah, retroactively yeah. So, like, Richter, speaking. Yeah, like Richter, Bobby and Richter uh, Bobby. are her big early crushes. Yeah, and you know Madrox, which like you know, <laughs> sure, yeah, sure. Uh, <laughs> but that's ba- I mean, if nothing else, bad taste, right? 
Like they're either yeah. gay or not someone you should date. Or in the case of Cannonball, who's her biggest romance, someone who's maybe just not that into you at the end of the day, right? Yeah, not emotionally available. Right. This really resonates with me because same, <laughs> I am the red flag also. When I am attracted to a man, I don't have this problem with women, but like the men that I've dated, I have started using myself as a litmus test where if I'm attracted to a man, like Get there's something opinion. wrong with him. Right. He needs to work on himself. <laughs> yeah, I am the red flag. And Boom Boom is very similar. There's this moment early on there's this like longstanding tradition of boom, boom, like while the grownups are off having their soap opera or whatever, the children get their like B plot in so many early stories with boom, boom. And it's amazing how much like levity it brings to the situation, no matter what the book is, but also Boom Boom doesn't get nearly enough credit for being as good with kids as she is. Like, she's older than Artie and Leech, obviously. But she's very good with them. She's so good with them. And later on, she's good with WizKid. Yes, exactly. I just love this side of her. Like, and it's not this sort of, like, sweet, simpering, like, okay, and now we're going to go do this. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, kind of putting her arm around Artie and being like, okay, let's go over here now. And it's because Rusty and Skids are about to like have sex in a corridor behind them, you know? And she's like, let me steer this child away from right. that. Shortly thereafter, we get the breaking point between Tabby and Hank. Well, first, Mask has been at the X Factor facility because of the mutant massacre stuff. And Tabby and Mask get into it. Oh, yeah. And Hank blames Tabby, which, like, you're blaming. You don't think Mask is the problem here? You think it's. Oh, the, yeah. And he like... didn't even, like, pause <laughs> to diagnose the situation. Like, <laughs> Hank is just, when he sees Tabby, it's on sight. It's like, on literally. Sight. And so her retaliation a couple issues later is to cause an explosion in his laboratory because. Fuck you. Just a little one in a test tube. Like, she doesn't destroy the facility or anything. It's it's like a prank level. Yes. It's kind of funny because it's different in the X Factor issue and the Fallen Angels issue that it ties into. Like, the seed is oh, really yeah, yeah. different. Uh, in the X Factor issue, it's she's portrayed as, like, when he gets mad about it and she's running away from him, she's really worried and like scared and like, right. Oh man, what am I going to do? I, I went too far this time. And then in fallen angels, she's like, <laughs> fucker. <laughs> Fuck that guy. <laughs> and uh, he deserved it. And you know, it's, it's just, just a funny crossover moment where you're like, these two writers did not compare scripts, but it's they fine. did not confer. Yeah. So that's how she ends up with the fallen angels. Yes. Ariel of the Coconut Grove arrives and teleports her away to the fallen angels base. The fallen angels are the new group of teen thieves that the Vanisher has assembled. Ariel is like, hey, we wanted to get you back. We've got the gang together. We want everybody to be here, including you, because you're the best. And Boom Boom, who is very vulnerable to wanting to be wanted and mm -hmm. accepted, of course goes with it. Of course. Of course. It all turns out to be an evil plot by the aliens of the Coconut Grove to capture mutant teenagers. 
Exactly. This is not an Ariel of the Coconut Grove episode, although I do have one in my spreadsheet because she's a lot of fun. She can't go through with it. She's like, I actually have grown to love these kids and like helps them escape. And that's sort of the big Fallen Angels resolution. The big thing that's important is that this is also the story where Tabby meets Sunspot and Warlock because Sunspot, if you go back to the Sunspot episode, had run away from the X-Mansion after herding Cannonball and joins up with the Fallen Angels and Warlock follows after him. And so that's how she meets those characters. And so later in New Mutants, when she joins that cast, she already knows those people. Um, It's also where she meets Madrox and Siren. And immediately starts thirsting after Madrox. Who only has eyes for Siren. And she's like, well, maybe one of the duplicates will like me, which is a really, I'm like, I get that. I like, that's like, love yourself, but also I get where you're coming from. You know what I mean? And Siren is like, kind of catty about it too. She's aware mm-hmm. of what Boom Boom is doing and kind of gives her a hard time well, for she's it. Like, hands off my man, kid. Yeah, child. Okay, have you ever seen a couple years ago when Ikea did those like pride flag themed couches? Yes. Do you remember the bisexual no one will believe you couch with like the hands all over it? It was one of the funniest things I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, yeah. That's like the couch that Tabby and Madrox dumpster dive and bring back to headquarters. (laughs) Like, I swear to God, go back and look at it. It is the Ikea no one will believe you couch that they have. Colors dead on. It's, It's the same couch. Apropos of nothing. Well, it's like how Tommy the Morlock is kind of the trans flag. Yes. But not on purpose because it didn't exist yet. Exactly. Yes. She just is those pastel colors. (laughs) This couch just is the bisexual. Is the bisexual no one will believe you couch. Sometimes the collective unconscious produces the same work of art multiple times. That'll happen, you know? There's this moment earlier, like when they were fighting mask, like Rusty and Skids. It had to do with the the hooker that rusty burned yes. accidentally when he was about to like in his, his incredibly gay backstory where it's like we're yes. going to make you lose your virginity and we've got this hot sexy lady who we've paid and then he manifests his firepowers and burns her face off yeah and it's an accident total accident, oh, He's total just accident like but he blames himself for it for the scared. rest of right. his, but that's his main arc in x factor and of course the girl he falls in love with is the one with a force field whose face he can't burn off like it's very exactly exactly yeah. Very appropriate. So he makes this deal with Mask to go, like, fix this woman's face because she's still in the hospital. Mm -hmm. Of course, it becomes a conflict. Well, Mask is like, you'll have to let me make you ugly because Mask is, like, a sadist. Right. And I just want it to be noted that when this scuffle was happening... Boom Boom kept her distance. Like, Rusty and Skids were getting into it with Mask, and Boom Boom was like... I don't want Mass to touch me. He is not touching me. Yeah. That's a no for me. I, I'll support from over here. It's actually worth noting, this is something that we skipped over in the Beyonder segment, but like when he is appealing to her after she's abandoned him at one point. Oh yeah. He's trying to like win her affection yeah. back. And he offers and her everything like, she I might want. He said, what if I made pretty. you beautiful? Right. And he makes her pretty. And shows her a mirror and she's like drawn. She can't even look at it. And she's like, like, I don't want that. Yeah. Don't give me that. What if I made you older because you've always wanted to be older? And then suddenly there's like an age. Suddenly she's like 20. He says, how about 21, right? Yeah. She's like, no. And then he's like, what if I took away the mutant powers? Because they've done nothing but ruin your life. And she's like, not that either. The fact that Tabby considers herself to be unattractive, which is something that the Beyonder just knows instinctively about her because he's like an omniscient god, right? Yeah. 
that's something that's interesting too. It's very akin to the early characterization of Kitty Pride coming in and feeling like next to Storm and Jean Grey, she looked like shit, which is something that's always relatable to like a teenager reading these comics, right? But it also sets up a lot of interesting dynamics between her and the other women in her peer group. Like Siren is more of a classic beauty. A siren, yes, if you will. Right. Yeah. And so when Madrox goes for siren, it's like, well, of course. Later, when Richter is more interested in Wolfsbane, which like talk about gay on gay violence, but Yeah, I was just gonna say, like <laughs> there's some layers to that. Too. Yeah, it's like Tabby, this isn't about you. But, you know, she's just like, Oh, well, that girl's like innocent and sweet, so of course. Like, no one wants me because I'm an ugly whore, is basically her thought process about herself, which is sad, but is also very real. Over the course of the 90s, she becomes, she blossoms into more of an attractive character. But it's also like, fake it till you make it. Exactly. Because of this bravado that she adopts, this sort of like, you know, what I'm going to keep calling a persona, because it's, well, it's totally a what front. she's deliberately, exactly, it's what she's deliberately projecting. Yes. This idea of herself as vapid, self-centered, and obsessed with appearances, a bimbo kind of thing. Like, that is, it's a defense that is an mechanism. affectation. It's You're not going to call me on. a dumb whore yeah. if I call me a dumb whore. Because exactly. then we all know I'm a dumb whore. Like, that's basically what she's doing. She's going to make the joke about herself before anybody else can. Right. The fake it till you make it aspect, like, this gives her confidence because she is assuming the role that she knows she has control of the narrative. Um, mm -hmm. She is adopting this persona when fallen angels ends she goes back to x factor and arrives just in time to see the right storming the facilities and kidnapping everyone there's no one there at first like yeah. she they don't let her in and she's banging on the door and she's like i'm sorry let me back in like i don't right. want to be <laughs> she assumes anymore. she's been rejected because that's her right, experience right, right? like oh my god and so she ends up breaking in by putting a little bomb in the lock and entering. And that's when she sees what's happening. Right. Which is that Cameron Hodge has sent his goons in. This, if you go back to the Richter episode, is the sequence where Richter and Cameron Hodge are fully established as like nemeses, which will bear fruit and extinction agenda. But it's her who meets Richter here and ends up saving him from like the torture experiment. Yeah. And what happens is Boom Boom has to assume this like reluctant he hero position, which mm -hmm. is always fun. Like she doesn't want to be doing this, but obviously she has to. So she begrudgingly becomes a stowaway on, on the right as they're kidnapping everyone else. And then kind of, furtively figures out how to rescue everybody and divert what's happening. It's honestly a very Jubilee storyline. I feel <laughs> like that's Jubilee what Jubilee line. does in the early 90s a lot is like, oh no, not me, the 13-year-old who makes explosions having to rescue <laughs> all the grown-ups. Like it is very much a precursor to that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And like I mentioned earlier, longstanding tradition of the kids having to step up and get shit done when the adults are like incapacitated or otherwise overly involved with their soap opera situation. Like, here's Scott and Gene. Well, Scott and Gene are in the throes of. Yeah, Gene just like, found out right about Maddie. So there's a lot that. going right. on. 
It is so dramatic. <laughs> Shortly after that, we get Fall of the Mutants, which is where X Factor drop the conceit of mutant hunting and what because louise simonson from the moment she got in the book has been like this concept is stupid and doesn't make any sense so let's spend the next however many issues deconstructing it in fall of the mutants they go public as mutant superheroes after saving manhattan from apocalypse which gets them a lot of positive press there's like a fucking parade i mean it goes well for them and as a result their teenage students suddenly become minor celebrities or at least like a human interest story in the news and people start sending them lots of gifts and stuff and it's christmas and it's this is a great little characterization of her it's i think 27 x factor 27 the others like rusty and skids and richter are like we should give these presents to like kids in the hospital or like we should pass these on we don't really need all this stuff and tabby's like i do yeah what about me <laughs> she's like i'm like the kid in the hospital like i want this stuff i don't have anything. i am a needy child right? <laughs> she's like i'm like 15 and own not a thing in the world and so she finally like they're like tabby come on like we live in a spaceship and like are fed three meals a day like come on and she's like all right fine but i'm keeping the sweater because it's cute but i'll give them like the toys and stuff like fine okay fine <laughs> you twisted my arm it's artie i think who like really can he already runs up and like gives her a hug and i think she's like all right fine 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 because she does like those kids yeah and she's so good with them yeah their innocence i think appeals to her as someone who had to grow up really really fast when she wasn't much older than they are yeah, yeah, and she's protective of it. Mm -hmm. That's when Infectia arrives. Was, that is, like, the next <laughs> thing that I wanted to bring up. <laughs> Infectia and uh, her, like, always trying to kiss Bobby and make that happen. Boom, boom, cock blocks. Infectia, who has the real name Josephine, but will always just be Infectia to me. Goofy as fuck villain. Yeah, just a goofy Louise Simonson character. She has the power to mutate and transmute people by kissing them. Don't worry too much about it, but she starts dating Bobby and keeps trying to contrive to kiss him, but in a very classic gay Bobby Drake storyline, it just never quite comes together. This is actually where Hank and Tabby reconcile a bit because they're both like infectious up to no good and also hank has been made dumb yes like, this is part of his ongoing like i lose my intelligence when i use my strength plot right so of course naturally stupid hank gets along fabulously with, with boom, boom, boom boom right <laughs> stay tuned someday for a trish tilby episode where we'll get more into the <laughs> hank turns stupid plot line because it's one of trish's nastiest moments love trish tilby but yes, so the kids start interrupting like Bobby and Josephine's dates to like make sure that she can't infection him. And eventually Hank kisses infection and that's what cures his... His dumbassery. His like flowers for Algernon storyline. <laughs> and it also yeah. turns him blue and furry again, like permanently, yes. which is necessary because Bob Layton had rolled that back because the initial X-Factor pitch is like, we're doing the 60s X-Men. But everyone was like, Beast is the blue guy from the avengers why would he not be the blue guy that doesn't make any <laughs> sense so he's been like shifting back and forth in stories before this and now he fully like beasts out again all of these early x-factor plots and fallen angels are very 60s x-men yes. 
like super, super very much in the spirit of 60s X-Men, where there's a lot of talking and scuffles and fights breaking out and it's like low stakes until it isn't exactly like low stakes until suddenly until suddenly like terrorists are storming the ship or whatever like but most of the time it's like well geez kids i don't know about all of this (laughs) rusty we have to you know it's like very that Yeah. Boom Boom is like, in these early appearances, she's the anti-Kitty Pride. Mm -hmm. Whatever was beloved about Kitty Pride in her earliest appearances, Boom Boom is the opposite. Like, she's abrasive and selfish and petty. It's kind of funny, actually, because the DC character Tara Markov, Tara, was a direct response to Kitty Pride because it was like, we're going to introduce a Kitty Pride type character, but then the twist is that she's like, an evil sociopath that's been more developed in other this is not a judas contract podcast because we'd be here for days <laughs> i'm sure but boom boom is almost a response to tara like you know what i mean like i don't know yeah, if yeah. it's that direct but it, it has that vibe in the same way that tara is like a nasty precocious teenager who has been taught to use sex as a weapon and like chain smokes like that's very boom boom right and so it's it's a very different vibe from the like ya heroine vibe of a gifted kid kitty pride yeah yeah very much so and that's never more clear than when x factor decides around this time that the ship is like not a safe place for these teenagers and for the we're gonna kids. ship you off to boarding so, school yeah they send them to the phillips exeter academy which is like a real school which is kind of funny to me where it's established that warren went which conflicts with the really weird miniseries where he was in catholic school but since warren absolutely shouldn't be catholic that doesn't make any goddamn sense it's fine yeah don't worry about that Anyway, so they go off there, and Tabby absolutely hates it. Like, Skids and Rusty can at least, like, blend in their... They can assimilate. Yes. But Boom Boom cannot. Skids is willing to dress preppy if it will help smooth things over with their new classmates or whatever. Boom Boom explodes her school uniform. Yeah. Again, this harkens back to what I was saying with, like, Boom Boom's approach to conflict resolution is, I'm going to blow it up. I also love this pattern of her making quick exits, not in, like, an Irish exit sort of way or, like, a fast getaway, but literally making new exits by blowing up holes in buildings. Mm -hmm. It's so much fun at one point i think it was earlier in x factor cyclops was like you can't do that and she's like i just did and he's like it's property destruction and she's like and (laughs) it is really ironic that x factor shipped off these young trainees to boarding school even though these young trainees keep getting them out of hairy situations and yeah like they've saved you every story so this is a weird choice right right like they have saved you so many times and you're just gonna ship them off like that but that's very much the like 30 something we are all lost vibe of x-factor the Simons and X Factor, where it's just like, well, I'm back together with my friends from high school, and we all have mental illness now. Like, that, <laughs> like that's sort of the vibe. Yeah. So they're like, why are we trying to take care of these children? That's not really what we should be doing. So, luckily for the X Factor kids, the Inferno pops off. Artie and Leech are kidnapped by demons, which leads their new friend Takimatsuya, who becomes Wizkid, to seek help from the teens 
Boom Boom takes the opportunity to steal them all a bunch of clothes from a store. <laughs> yeah. Do they, they shop? I mean, maybe they pay for it. They do not. No. I was like, I feel like they just shoplift him. And she gives them all their most iconic look. She designs their costumes, which is a fun bit from her. Yeah, she absolutely does. Like Richter gets his little vest. With like the sleeves ripped off. Skids gets the look she has worn to this day, which is that yellow low cut unitard with the blue jacket over it. Yep. Yep. And when she gets picked up at the school by Wizkid, she's like in panties and a sleep shirt. Like mm-hmm. she had been in bed and because she hates this place, she's just like, fuck it, let's go. She does not even put on pants. She leaves that school and is like hanging midair on a ladder to get up into this moving aircraft in her panties, which is iconic to me. It's a vibe. It's a vibe. Boom Boom is also her whole vibe to me. The mischief, the tiny bombs, that kind of thing. She's like a one woman Home Alone movie. She Absolutely. She is both the robbers and Kevin. Yeah. She is also the one who names the team the exterminators they take that name that x-factor is no longer using and she's like we're the exterminators now we're real heroes and we are going to save the day they end up teaming up with the new mutants to rescue the babies that nastir is going to sacrifice as part of his complex spell these babies will much later in zeb wells's new mutants in the aughts become a major threat called the inferno babies but i have stated that I refuse to talk about the Inferno Babies ever again on this podcast because they've come up like 500 (laughs) times. And if you know, you know. And if you don't, this is episode 89. And there are previous episodes that will tell you all you need to know about the Inferno Babies. Maybe check out Magic or Cannonball. Those would be good ones. After the Inferno, the New Mutants have rejected Magneto because of his association with the Hellfire Club. So X-Factor is like, well your new friends can come stay with us. The two teams kind of merge into one and they all just start calling themselves the New Mutants. And Tabby, Richter, Skids, and Rusty join the cast of New Mutants, which Simonson is at this point also writing, right? That's how she pulls those characters out of X-Factor in a way that's not just shipping them off to boarding school, which makes a lot of sense. Skids and Rusty do not end up staying long because of various plot contrivances that you can hear more about in the Skids episode with Jordan Bloom. The key is that it's really just Richter and Tabby by the time they all get dragged into Asgard for a conflict with Hela because Danny has been possessed. Don't super worry about it, but all the Valkyries are all demonified for a minute. What's happening here now in this era is Boom Boom is immediately smitten with Cannonball. Yes. So it's kind of a love triangle between her and Richter and Cannonball, where it seems like Richter is into her, and she thinks Richter is cute, but she's into Cannonball. And Cannonball is still hung up on Lila Cheney, who has apparently died recently. So it's complicated. And I think her interest in Cannonball... I mean, obviously, they will go on to become one of the main X-Men couples of the 90s, which is a little bit wild in retrospect, thinking about them now as characters. They were like the Scott and Jean of X-Force, which is fully crazy. To me, it feels like her looking for... He's only like a few years older than her, but it has that looking for daddy 
vibe, right? Like, he also grew up really fast. He was the oldest taking care of his younger siblings. He has a nurturing stand-up guy kind of energy. He was dating this, like, rock star who was, like, definitely an adult. And he's, like, 18 to Boom Boom's, like, 15 or 16 at this point in the story. It's very appealing. It makes sense. But he doesn't seem to register that at all no he's not as emotionally to be fair he's not good at that he didn't realize that rain had a crush on him either he's not very good at figuring that out the notable thing though that endears her to him further is that when cyclops comes down hard on her in training exercise and stuff cannonball's like no no she's doing a really good job and cyclops (laughs) is like yeah you're invulnerable when you're blasting notably or nigh invulnerable to be more precise If someone else had been in the area when she did that explosion, they would have been really hurt. So she needs to master powers. The cow was like, I guess. But they become (laughs) friends. Then the whole Asgard thing pops off. Boom Boom, though, is pretty central to the resolution. Like, she helps muster all the forces of Asgard. She literally beats Thor in a fight. It's canon. (laughs) It's good. It's fun. It is canon that Boom Boom defeats Thor. She attaches a time bomb to Mjolnir. Mm -hmm. I can't remember who it is that she was asking about it, but she was like watching the fight and she noticed that, you know, Thor can summon Mjolnir and he keeps calling it back to fight. And she's not going to be able to lift it, but she can put a bomb on it. Exactly. So she asked someone like, does it always travel back to him? And they were like, yeah. And she's like, good noted. So she puts a time bomb on Mjolnir and then sure enough, when Thor summons it and it goes flying back to him, the impact just levels him. It's it's amazing. Yeah. And so she winds up separated from the rest of the team, except for Warlock. They team up with Hrimhari the Wolf Prince on a little journey. And when I say that this is good and fun, I mean that Boom Boom is good and fun in it. This arc I find pretty rough. It's a tough one. It's just long, honestly. <laughs> but... It is a nice bit of focus for Boom Boom in New Mutants. And for readers of New Mutants, she's a pretty new character if they weren't reading X-Factor. So it's nice to give her that time. I was going to say, I think that most people's first introduction to Boom Boom is through New Mutants. Yeah, is in Inferno, honestly. Cause yeah. Purely because the Simonson X-Factor is not well collected. Yeah. Like there's big gaps in it on Marvel Unlimited even because it's never been collected in trade in places. And so it hasn't been digitally recolored. That's starting to change as like epic collections and stuff come out. But a lot of people simply haven't read Secret Wars 2 and then simply haven't had a chance to read a lot of the Simonson X-Factor stuff. After they return from Asgard, Boom Boom is troubled I mean, first of all, she's now drawn by Rob Liefeld and wearing a new costume that is a very, very short skirt. She wants to impress in her new look. And Richter does not even pay attention because during their time in Asgard, Richter and Wolfsbane have become much, much closer. And that's when she says, like, ever since we got back from Asgard, all he can see is that goody two-shoes man-stealing red-headed werewolf. She feels like Madonna Horde, ironically, as the whore, not the Madonna given that she's visually based on Madonna. But that's the fun of Madonna being named Madonna, and that's why Madonna does all that Catholic imagery in her work. This is not a Madonna podcast. (laughs) (laughs) It could be. But if you're named Madonna and you're not super into being a devout Catholic, it's a tough one. 
So that kind of puts paid to the boom boom and Richter flirtation, which redirects her focus entirely to Cannonball, just in time for the new mutants to get their new mentor, Cable. The wacky time-traveling soldier with the metal arm and the glowing eye who you know so well. They keep fighting Freedom Force for reasons. This is related to Rusty and Skids. Don't worry, again, too much about it. But eventually, to sort of lay low, they move with Cable into the basements under the X-Mansion that got blown up. Like, the mansion got blown up in Inferno, but the sub-basement levels are still functional. And so they're just sort of hiding out under the wreckage on the site of the Xavier Mansion, training to fight the Mutant Liberation Front, who are Cable's enemies and who have kidnapped Rusty and Skids from Freedom Force custody. And that's really like exit Rusty and Skids. I mean, they pop up as like brainwashed MLF members a couple of times, and then Rusty dies in Fatal Attractions and Skids gets shuffled off to Comic Limbo because unfortunately for her, only a few issues after she was introduced, Boom Boom just fully showed up and was the more dynamic and interesting blonde teenage character in the book. (laughs) I think now, before we get into Extinction Agenda and the changeover from Simonson to Liefeld and Nisiesa is a good time to pause for the Cerebro character file on Tabitha Smith. I will take you through her complete publication history from Secret Wars 2 up to Exterminators by Leah Williams and Carlos Gomez. Then we will come back for more with Leah. We will talk about the 90s, Next Wave, and the whole lot of not much else that Boom Boom has done <laughs> until the Krakoan age. <laughs> Then we will answer a lot of questions from listeners like you. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. X-Men, X-Men. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. And now, Miss Candy Southern and me, your host, with a message from our sponsors. Long time no see, beautiful boys and groovy gals. The summer's just beginning, and I, for one... (laughs) Oh my, that one was a whopper. What's the matter, Candy? Sorry, Connor, old sport. My allergies are just the pits this year. I'm afraid any ad for me is going to sound like it was recorded underwater. Have you tried Astapro over-the-counter nasal spray? It's the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray and starts working in 30 minutes while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray, delivering full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. I've had terrible allergies this year, which is a bummer when you record a podcast for a living, but Astapro has kept me sounding crystal clear. It's got your back and your nose. And thank heavens for that. If you've got allergies like me and Candy, get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com X-Men, X-Men. Tabitha Tabby Smith, best known by the codename Boom Boom, but at other times called Time Bomb, Boomer, or Meltdown, was one of the most prominent X-Men characters of the 1990s. Created by Jim Shooter and Al Milgram for the 1985 company-wide event Secret Wars 2, Scrappy Street Kid Tabby was picked up by writer Louise Simonson as one of the teenage students of the 80s X-Factor team. She later joined the New Mutants and remained with that team when they became X-Force in 1991. After that book's cancellation, the characters somewhat struggled to remain in the spotlight, despite a star turn in Warren Ellis and Stuart Immonen's Next Wave. She currently appears as a regular cast member in the limited series Exterminators by Leah Williams and Carlos Gomez. 
In Secret Wars 2, 13-year-old Tabby is our viewpoint into the strange life of the Beyonder, the cosmic entity who is the event's antagonist. Beaten by her father after her explosive mutant powers manifested, Tabby runs away from home in an effort to reach a rumored school for mutants in Westchester. The Beyonder disassembles her train, and Boom Boom, assuming he's also a mutant, decides to travel with him. When he brings her to Xavier, she is devastated when the X-Men ignore her to attack the Beyonder. Tabby runs into the woods to kill herself with one of her own time bombs, but the Beyonder arrives and convinces her to travel the universe with him instead. Eventually, she grows frightened of his cold omnipotence, and she helps the Avengers capture him. Left alone, she's racked with guilt for betraying the only person who had been kind to her. About two years later, she returns in the pages of X Factor by Louise and Walt Simonson. We learn that she's been living on the streets of Manhattan, working as a pickpocket for the classic X-Men villain, The Vanisher. Pissed that The Vanisher keeps taking a big cut of her earnings, Tabby reports him to X Factor, who at this point are supposedly mutant hunters. Before they can arrive, The Vanisher convinces her to stay with him, so she attacks X Factor when they show up. Eventually, Beast and Iceman, in their true identities as mutant superheroes, are able to convince Tabby that she should come stay with them and train in the use of her powers. Tabby is a constant thorn in Beast's side, though she gets along well with the other students, Rusty Collins, Skids, Artie Maddox, and Leech. After an altercation with the Morlock leader Mask gets her yelled at by Beast yet again, she decides to play a prank on him. She leaves a time bomb in his laboratory. Fleeing the scene, she pivots into the miniseries Fallen Angels by Joe Duffy and Kerry Gamble, as the alien teleporter Ariel, another one of the Vanisher's employees, spirits her away back to his headquarters. Tabby joins the Vanisher's new crew of teen criminals, the Fallen Angels, and meets some of their other new recruits, Sunspot, Warlock, Siren, and Multiple Man, whom she crushes on hard, much to Siren's chagrin. Eventually, Ariel reveals she's actually serving evil alien masters to kidnap the kids, but she has a change of heart and helps them escape. Tabby returns to X-Factor just in time to help rescue the team and her fellow students from the forces of the Right, an anti-mutant terrorist organization. During this battle, she meets Richter, the newest student, whom she helps escape from the wicked Cameron Hodge. After the franchise-wide event Fall of the Mutants, X-Factor declare themselves publicly as mutant superheroes, and their teenage wards become a matter of public interest. Tabby is reluctant to give up the Christmas gifts sent for them by well-wishers, as she feels she's in need and deserving of charity. She later reconciles somewhat with Beast when they team up to protect Iceman from the machinations of Infectia. Shortly after this, though, X-Factor decide that their headquarters isn't a safe place for children, and decide to enroll their students at the Phillips Exeter Academy in New Hampshire. Tabby hates this preppy new environment, and takes the opportunity of the 1988 franchise-wide event Inferno to run away with her friends. With Artie and Leech captured by demons, the X-Factor students take on the now-disused name The Exterminators, and charge after the demon Nastir to save them. Tabby designs fashionable superhero costumes for herself and her friends, eager to be a real adult hero. The Exterminators team up with the New Mutants, the students at the Xavier School, to help rescue babies who were also kidnapped by Nastir. In the aftermath of the event, with the New Mutants abandoning their headmaster Magneto, the teens all decide to become one group, living with X-Factor. Tabby, Richter, Skids, and Rusty join the New Mutants, though Rusty and Skids quickly exit the book. See the Sally Blevins episode for more on that. Tabby finds herself torn between her crush on Sam Guthrie, aka Cannonball, and the affections of her friend Richter. When the New Mutants are spirited away to Asgard to help with the crisis possessing the Valkyries, Tabby proves essential to victory by amassing allies from all across the realm. When they return to Earth, now drawn by Rob Liefeld, Tabby is dismayed to find that Richter's developed feelings for Wolfsbane. Still, she remains a team player as the team begins instruction with a new mentor, Cable, a time-traveling super-soldier. Tabby and Sam's relationship becomes overtly romantic when they're captured by the Mutant Liberation Front operative Dragoness, and Sam seduces her into a kiss in order to escape. Jealous, Tabby seizes him to plant a kiss of her own on him. 
This all leads into the 1990 franchise-wide event Extinction Agenda, Louise Simonson's last story on New Mutants, in which Tabby is among the mutants taken into custody by operatives of the Genosian anti-mutant apartheid government. She proves a capable heroine even with her powers dampened, and she and Richter escape, teaming up with Wolverine's new sidekick, Jubilee. While the X-Men and their allies prove victorious and the Genosian government falls, the New Mutants are left devastated. Warlock has been murdered by Cameron Hodge, and Wolfsbane has been permanently altered by the mutate bonding process. She decides to remain on Genosha to help rebuild, upsetting Richter, who eventually leaves the team to try to convince her to return. Sunspot, meanwhile, departs for Brazil after the death of his father. This leaves Tabby and Sam as the only New Mutants standing by issue 100, after which Rob Liefeld and Fabian Niciesa rebrand the team as X-Force, an aggressive paramilitary group led by Cable. After a disastrous conflict with Black Tom Cassidy and the Juggernaut at the World Trade Center, experts are declared wanted terrorists and go into hiding. Shortly thereafter, in a fight with the new Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, Sam is murdered by Sauron, only to abruptly resurrect after dying in Tabby's arms. Cable explains that Sam is one of the Externals, or High Lords, a fabled group of immortal mutants essential to the future of the species. Sam and Tabby are left wondering what this means to their relationship. Around this time, Rob Liefeld leaves Marvel and Fabian Niciesa assumes full writing duties on X-Force. After Cable goes missing in a conflict with the government and an imposter, actually his clone Strife, leader of the Mutant Liberation Front, frames him in an assassination attempt on Charles Xavier, experts end up taken into custody by the X-Men during the 1993 franchise-wide event Executioner's Song. Tabby and Sam negotiate their own release to help fight the MLF, and Tabby ends up facing off with her old friend Skids, who's since been brainwashed by Strife. Skids kicks Tabby in the face, breaking her jaw, and the event concludes with Cable and Strife both apparently killed. X-Force establish a new base with the help of Sam's ex-girlfriend, Lila Cheney, who gives Tabby and Sam her blessing after Tabby, feeling threatened, insults her. Sam and Tabby's relationship progresses to the point that he invites her back to Kentucky to meet his family. While visiting the Guthrie farm, they're attacked by the upstarts as part of the young hunt, and the battle brings them closer together. Tabby decides she doesn't care if the man she loves is immortal, and she'll choose to live in the moment. In 1995's X-Force 43, the final issue before Niciesa is fired from the title, Tabby comes across a teenage prostitute named Priscilla in New York City. Tabby recognizes her own past in Priscilla's predicament and tries to help the girl by putting her in contact with a charity. Writing duties on X-Force are then assumed by Jeff Loeb, and the team moves back into the Xavier Mansion. There, Tabby becomes fixated on the mutant serial killer Sabretooth, who's being held prisoner for psychic rehabilitation by Xavier and Jean Grey. After a fight with Wolverine, Sabretooth's been left essentially lobotomized, and Tabby takes pity on him, bringing him milk and confiding her secrets in a dangerous older man who cannot respond. Tabby's friends try to stage an intervention, as they believe Sabretooth is faking his condition, but she's undeterred. It turns out they were right, as Sabretooth goads her into attacking him with her time bombs, accidentally freeing him from his restraints. Psylocke leaps to Tabby's defense and is nearly killed by Sabretooth in the ensuing battle. Feeling stupid and remorseful, Tabby decides to take a leave of absence. She returns to Virginia to see her father, who apologizes for his abusive treatment of her. We learn that Tabby's mother died in her arms when she was a child, and this memory has haunted Tabby all her life. But her father reveals that she actually survived and left him, and he just told Tabby she was dead. Before he can tell her more, they're attacked by Sebastian Shaw and Holocaust, who leave Tabby's father in a coma. Tabby reacts poorly. She cuts her hair off, designs a new costume, and adopts the codename Meltdown. While she alarms her friends with her harsh new attitude, she chills out a little after the external Selene reveals to X-Force in a retcon that Sam was never actually one of the High Lords. In 1997, new writer John Francis Moore kicks off the road trip era, in which X-Force bid goodbye to Cable and strike off on their own. Tabby embarks on a cross-country road trip with Sunspot, Danny Moonstar, Warpath, and Siren, but has to part with Sam, who's recently been promoted to the X-Men. Lonely and feeling neglected, Tabby winds up sharing some illicit kisses with Sunspot, which causes quite the brouhaha when Sam discovers them during a visit. 
He flies away devastated, and Tabby and Sunspot decide they'll try dating. It doesn't work out, especially after Sam rejoins X-Force. In 1999's X-Force 87, Tabby is reunited with her father, but is irritated to discover both that he has remarried for the third time and has joined a weird cult. This incident, combined with a disastrous battle against King Bedlam's New Hellions, compels Tabby to break up with Sunspot. He's then detained by the INS for reasons. Go back to the Sunspot episode for more on that. Eventually, he resurfaces in the company of Celine, who traps X-Force in illusions of their past. Tabby comes face to face with a man she killed in self-defense as a teenager who had been roughing up the girls on the street. It's implied in this story, as in Nicias' brief Priscilla story, that Tabby did sex work in the time between her appearances in Secret Wars 2 and X Factor. As John Francis Moore departs the series and writer Warren Ellis architects a revamp of the X-Men line called Counter X, Tabby and Sam rekindle their relationship after she saves his life when his powers are dampened by the High Evolutionary. They join Warpath and their new teammate Jesse Aronson in becoming a black ops squad at the direction of Pete Wisdom, who helps Tabby further refine her energy powers. This new direction for X-Force did not take, and the series was cancelled in 2001 to make way for a satirical Peter Milligan and Mike Allred comic now better known as X-Statics. Two years later, Tabby appears in Frank Thierry's Weapon X as part of Cable's resistance movement battling the titular program. She also joins Cable and several of her old teammates in a 2004 X-Force miniseries by Rob Liefeld and Fabian Niciesa, in which they battle an alien threat called the Scorn. In 2006, Tabby is one of several disused characters chosen by Warren Ellis to be part of his comedy book with Stuart Eminem, Next Wave Agents of Hate. Tabby becomes part of the paramilitary Next Wave squad, but eventually discovers that their organization is secretly led by their enemies. Tabby brings this information to the squad leader, Monica Rambo, and the team turns on their employers before disbanding after issue 12 in 2007. In 2008, Tabby returns in a story by Mike Carey in the anthology series X-Men Manifest Destiny, about the X-Men moving to San Francisco following Messiah Complex. Tabby foils a mutant criminal by harnessing her own social media platform. From there, she's reduced to cameo appearances until a 2009 arc of Craig Kyle and Christopher Yost's new iteration of X-Force, now depicting the adventures of Cyclops' secret Black Ops squad. Tabby is abducted by the suicidal anti-mutant bigot called the Leper Queen, leader of the Sapien League, who intends to use her as bait to force X-Force to kill her. When X-Force are pulled away on a time travel mission, the Leper Queen is furious and shoots Tabby in the head, murdering her in cold blood. When the time travel arc concludes, X-23 is able to leap back in time to save Tabby's life and kill the Leper Queen instead. They are then captured by agents of Hammer, one of whom intends to sexually assault Tabby, but they are rescued by Warpath. Tabby then moves to the mutant haven Utopia off the coast of San Francisco, where she serves again as a cameo queen. It's mentioned that she, Dazzler, and Lifeguard are part of a street team of X-Men, but tragically, we never see them together on panel. Tabby remains on Utopia after the 2011 schism and aids her fellow mutants in Avengers vs. X-Men. In 2013, she features in writer Dennis Hopeless's book Cable and X-Force, most notably teaming up with Domino to break into the maximum security prison for superhumans called The Raft. She and Domino are also able to save civilians from a dangerous newly manifesting mutant, and she and Dr. Nemesis end up fighting the adversary. Don't worry about it right now, but hold that thought for the Forge episode next month. In 2015, Tabby briefly appears in cameos as part of the Utopians, a group of mutants who've chosen to live in the abandoned ruins of Utopia. During the 2017 company-wide event Secret Empire, Tabby and some of her friends come into conflict with the Inhumans, but we do not talk about Inhumans versus X-Men on this podcast. The following year, Tabby is one of the stars of the Matthew Rosenberg miniseries New Mutants Dead Souls, in which she's hired alongside Richter, Magic, Wolfsbane, and Strong Guy by fellow former New Mutant Karma to serve as occult investigators. It turns out Karma's being controlled by the soul of her evil brother, and the miniseries ends sort of abruptly. Tabby pivots into Ed Brisson's work on Cable in the Extermination Event, wherein Cable is murdered by a younger version of himself. 
Tabby and the rest of X-Force are tasked with hunting down Teen Cable while also protecting the time-displaced teen original X-Men from Ahab the Houndmaster. Though it turns out young Cable is more benevolent than he first appeared, the reunited classic X-Force team continue to hunt for him in a relaunch of the title written by Brisson. Eventually, they manage to save Kid Cable and his sister Rachel Summers from Strife. In the 2019 soft reboot House of X and Powers of Ten by writer Jonathan Hickman, Tabby is one of countless means to become a citizen of the new mutant sovereign nation on the living island Krakoa. Apart from Richter, who's busy with the new iteration of Excalibur, and Rusty and Skids, who don't really count, Tabby and Magma are the only classic new mutants not invited by Sunspot on his space adventure to visit Sam. That story is written by Hickman, and in the alternating issues, a story by Ed Brisson depicts Tabby teaming up with Hisako Ichiki, aka Armor, to fight anti-mutant bigots in Nebraska. In the following arc, she joins Magma on a journey to investigate monster attacks in Nova Roma. Eventually, the other new mutants return to Earth and try to explain to Tabby that she wouldn't get out of bed when they tried to invite her. She doesn't buy it. Her teen years as a street criminal prove essential to a mission to the former Soviet state of Carnelia, where she reveals she speaks conversational Russian. She's therefore key to safely apprehending the dangerous newly manifested teen mutant Cosmar, whose reality-warping abilities are out of control. In 2021, after Teen Cable returns to the future and the older Cable Tabby knew for so many years is resurrected, she joins an impromptu squad of all-new exterminators for a mission to the break world in the Al Ewing and Stefano Caselli one-shot Cable Reloaded. Sam and Lila Cheney are also on the team, and Tabby and Lila relish taking the opportunity to tease Sam about his new domestic life as a husband and father in Shi'ar space. After losing the X-Men vote at the Hellfire Gala, Tabby and her fellow Ulcerans are tapped by Sunspot for a mission in the 2022 one-shot Secret X-Men by Teeny Howard and Francesco Mobili, in which they travel to the Shi'ar Empire to help Empress Xandra. By the end of the story, Xandra erases their memories of the adventure. Tabby takes a starring role later that year in the limited series Exterminators by Leah Williams and Carlos Gomez, in which a girl's night out with her friends Jubilee and Dazzler becomes a fight to the death against hungry vampires. And that's what Leah and I are talking about in this episode, so you should buy it. Issue 2 should be out by the time you're hearing this, and so far, it's a lot of fun. X-Men, X-Men. And we're back with Leah Williams, writer of Exterminators, The Trial of Magneto, X-Factor, and the upcoming... Power Girl arc of is it Action Comics with like a rotating? It's Action Comics, but it's like an anthology and it's alternating stories, right, or something like that. Um, I missed it's... the panel, so I'm like I'm like making this up as I go. I'm still. I, it's fine. It was a surprise <laughs> to me too. Like I um I didn't know that those shorts were like solidified yet. So I was like, awesome. I got the gig. (laughs) (laughs) But that also can be attributed to just like my general dumbassness. I was going to say I knew they were before it was announced. So how did (laughs) that's a me problem. (laughs) It's like I just got my ear to the ground. I'm like, boom, boom. (laughs) Yeah, it's a series of shorts in like backup shorts in Action Comics 1051, 52 and 53. So pre-order those if you want to see Leah Wright. Power Girl and pre-order the rest of Exterminators if you would like to see more work from Leah at Marvel and also just like more stuff like this because it is such a unique book and I think how it does will be a litmus test for stories like this in the future. It is the first mature reader's title in the line besides X-Force and Wolverine, correct? Like it's Ben's really grisly stuff. And then this one is like parental advisory, tits and blood. Like, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So like Ben's got the mature rating for his grim dark. Like we're cutting people's heads off and stuff. And like, yeah. 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 And there's like trauma and, and that kind of thing. And I think mine is more like a language and violence and mm-hmm. tits thing. 
the violence doesn't feel as bad though because it's supposed to be schlocky it's right it's cartoony right but it's house. still like yeah. r-rated movie is essentially the vibe of the in issue three boom boom and jubilee kink shame the main villain for having a piss kink so that did make it in it's not it was it not made cut. It in. okay love it to hear it was not cut <laughs> i took a screenshot that i can't wait to post on my instagram gallery the day that that issue comes out of the all caps notification from my editor jordan where he all he says excitedly is the p page got approved mm. yeah love that i love that i mean i'm famously a big advocate of the chuck austin page where havoc theorizes he might have drank enough water to piss Iceman a new body after Iceman gets shattered and Bobby's like don't you dare Alex and I'm just like this is weirdly erotic but it's whatever fascinating implications the Bobby and Alex of it all is always really I have a lot of thoughts (laughs) (laughs) I have merch about it dating Polaris is gay buy it at T Public. 100% but the book is fun in large part to me because it brings together these female characters who haven't often had the opportunity to just hang out with other girls. Yeah. Like Jubilee in Gen X was more friends with like Everett. Laura and Jubilee have had adventures together before in the Marjorie Lou stuff, which I really like. I mean, there are a lot of people who are very fond of those two together in all kinds of ways. Yeah. With Boom Boom, she was usually like the girl on a team of boys a lot of the time or one of two girls. But she was always more of a guy's girl than a girl's girl in her lineups historically. And so it's fun to see her just like partying with the ladies because Dazzler's always been more of a girl's girl. Yeah, yeah. And Boom Boom, even if she's like very much got a pick me vibe in her early appearances like i'm not like other girls right i'm different where she thinks that she doesn't get along with other girls because there's too much drama or right. you know whatever like nonsense young women are kind of socially conditioned to believe about ourselves she's very much got that vibe and then as she gets older and kind of interacts with the world more she's like oh no i'm a girly girl I'm exactly like other girls and it's fucking awesome. Like she, she makes more, more female friends and with exterminators too, which doesn't pass the Bechdel test at all, by the way. Yeah. But I think the Bechdel test is fully dead now after the fire Island controversy, like Alison Bechdel was like, <laughs> please stop. I'm begging you. So. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to reference it one more time on this podcast though, because there's a part in her continuity where like, it becomes very important to me to bring that up. It's just very frustrating to me when a joke, notably, from a comic strip about lesbians is used as a weapon against queer people. As a litmus test. Writing And it stories. is like the lowest possible <laughs> bar. That's the joke. But straight people don't know that. That's why they take it as gospel. Right. And there's also lots of stuff that passes the Bechdel test that is not particularly loving toward women right so right you know it was literally a punchline in a comic strip it was not something that was ever supposed to be enduring 40 years later almost 
but oh yeah yeah i'm just gonna reference it again a second time in this podcast when it happens again for comedic purposes i got a master's in media studies and so i have a lot of (laughs) oh yeah 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 you could write a whole essay on this i'm sure so boom boom and exterminators and just getting to like chill with other women is really refreshing to me because she is one of those characters and this is really common with x-men women there's always like the girl on the team right or they like more times than i could even begin to enumerate female characters get this role of having to be defined through their relationship with a man being the girlfriend or the mom or the daughter right or the protege the the right. mentee yeah those Wolverine surrogate daughter characters exactly they're always given their validity through an avenue of a male character it never happens on their own they don't get their own agency Part of what Claremont did that was so revolutionary with characters like Storm and Phoenix I was just thinking about Storm. Was making that not the case. Betsy in his work is also not defined. Like, to the point where she became a bigger character than her brother. Because initially, as presented in the early Captain Britain comics, she was very much defined by her relationship. She was the damsel in distress for her brother. That is a rare thing that he was really conscious of it's also why he didn't ever use girl or woman code names because he thought that it marginalized the characters yeah yeah and it's something that he very mindfully addresses not only in terms of marginalization when it comes to women but he brings up race a lot too in in his writing kitty pride has said the n-word three times she sure has um Did that come up on the Kitty Pride episode? Oh, honey, it's come up on this show a lot. <laughs> he has said that if he were writing it now, he'd do it differently. Yeah. But it was a different time. And Evan Narcisse and I talked about it in the Dazzler episode, actually, because he was like, here's the thing. God Loves Man Kills tackled race in a superhero comic in a way nobody had before, really. Certainly not white people. And is it a little awkward now to go back and read that comic? Sure. The real problem is that because of the sliding time scale that now happened in like 2015 and like Kitty is going to get canceled so hard on social (laughs) for that. He did tackle these issues. He tackled sexuality and gender as much as he could as well. And he was the only writer doing this kind of thing at the time. You know, love you, Chris. If you're listening, Chris does not listen to my podcast, but I did actually have him sign my Excalibur omnibus at New York Comic Con this year, which was fun. Nice. He's excited to read Betsy Braddock, Captain Britain. He really likes what Teeny's been doing with that character. Yeah, yeah, I heard about that. He, so Teeny had like a helper at her table kind of manning her station while she, she went to like, the snack or whatever. <laughs> yeah, I got like the whole dramatic reenactment. It was amazing. This was at Emerald City Comic Con. She wasn't at her table and Chris Claremont approaches and sees a girl sitting there and starts telling her all of these really kind things. Like, I am a big fan of what you've been doing in Excalibur. I I love your writing, that kind of thing. And then after he's finished, because Chris Claremont can talk, honey. Oh, he he talks. He's a talker. Yeah. So like after he finishes his monologue, the girl just looks at him and she's like, I'm not teeny. I'm just sitting at her table until she gets here. I'm her helper. Yeah. Yeah. And he's like, okay, well, you can pass the message along because I'm not repeating it. (laughs) Yeah. So then Teeny gets there and she's like, hey, this like older gentleman came by to tell you how much he likes your work. His name was Chris. And she goes, couldn't 
possibly be Claremont, Chris like Claremont, who also is a famous who like, famously doesn't famous like anyone else writing exactly. his characters, especially characters like Kitty and Betsy, who are like his favorites. Rachel, yeah, like, he has babies. certain characters, Storm, who are like his faves. Yeah. So then she got on his line and went up and talked to him, and he was like, "Oh, well, I already told the girl at your table, so she can tell you." And she's like, "Yeah, yeah, I'm not repeating it. Please tell me, because the girl at the table worked for the con. She didn't know what the guy was talking about." She didn't know who he was. And right. meanwhile, he's like... And hadn't read Teeny's book, I don't think. Like, she was just a helper who was like a yeah. staffer at the con. But the, so I said to him, I heard that you've been liking it. And he goes, oh, yeah, I really, you know, it's very, very different from mine. But that's part of what I like about it. Excalibur is very close to my heart. And I like seeing people do things that are very different from anything I would do. Because if it's like something I would do, I'm like, why don't I get to write it? Uh, <laughs> which I think is related. I get that. I get that. It's fair. He actually, the thing that I thought was interesting, he said is, I wish that she and all these writers had more time to just tell a story. Oh, yeah. I think it's really evident. He's like, the world I was in is very different from the world that these writers are in, where they all have to worry about tying into crossovers all the time and, like, dovetailing with each other's books. And he's like, I wish, he's like, I really enjoyed the book, but I wish that I could have read her version if she didn't have to do any of that at all and like just do something for 30 issues or whatever that's whatever you want to do yeah other than like changing attitudes and and cultural zeitgeist and that kind of thing the company is just very different also the companies are very different but like a huge huge difference in the storytelling in claremont's time versus our time now is the fact that he was just given room to roam like he did not have an end in sight and he did all of it it was like him and wheezy and annie nascenti did everything everything in sequential storytelling there's no end in sight you just keep adding and adding and adding but that's not the case anymore right especially like he was just told okay this sells do it as long as you want basically until there was an issue with the editor and then it all but he, he wrote it for 16 years i mean nowadays at one of the big two. That could never like, happen again. <laughs> yeah. It's like you get five issues. Let's see how it sells. And then maybe there will be more is the standard at the big two these days. So, right, you know, right. it's just a very different. Different industry. Yeah. Different I mean, time, different industry. Yeah. And he was just saying, I really enjoyed it. I wish that these writers had more of the freedom that I had, which was, I thought, a thoughtful comment from. That is really thoughtful. Yeah. yeah. I, I wish we did, too. He's like, I'll definitely check out that solo at some point. I mean, he he doesn't read things like monthly. He's not, you know, but he'll oh, no, no, no. he reads like hardcovers when they're sent to him or whatever. But he's like, I'm excited to read it at some point. I think she's doing great stuff. So that was nice. That's a feather in anyone's cap. I think part of it is that they both love the old Alan Moore Captain Britain stuff so much. Yeah, of course it appeals to him. Anyway, this is not her episode. We should ask him what he thinks about Trial of Magneto at some point because he did write. Oh, he hasn't read it. I, I, he hasn't read <laughs> Trial of Magneto. I, he's never read any of my work. I'm almost certain. I think he's reading more of the Krakoa era stuff now because he wants to. He is he now. He's yeah. more open to it. And I think he could be coerced into reading Exterminators. I think he would love Exterminators and Just someone should give it to it him at whatever con he's at next. I think he would love it too. Mr. Claremont, just read this. Yeah. All right. So anybody... Yes, please do, fans. Anybody listening to this, like, just please approach Chris. Give him a copy of Exterminators. Tell him a woman wrote it. He loves that. 
and that it's perverted and filthy. A fun homage to exploitation cinema from the 70s and 80s, because that's a lot of his run on Uncanny X-Men also. Yes. So um, <laughs> I think he would dig it. That gets us back to Boom Boom. When last we left our heroine, she was part of the New Mutants. She was pursuing Cannonball romantically. Rob Liefeld is now drawing the book and progressively begins to direct more and more of the story. This is my, as soon as I say this, you have a really devoted listener that I'm, I'm good friends with. And as soon as I, I say what I'm about to say, I know I'm going to get a text from him because it's like his shit, but we are entering my biggest area of, of lack of expertise. <laughs> the 90s stuff, the cable stuff it isn't my forte because I never connected with Rob Liefeld's art. So I like never got into it. I actually like the early Liefeld stuff in New Mutants. I think that by the time of like his image era and afterward, I don't quite vibe with it as much, but you can see why he became such a superstar here. It's very kinetic. It's very action packed. And that was sort of what people wanted at that time. Kind of the bridge between Art Adams and Jim Lee in some ways. It's competent it is competent comic book art but i just never connected with it so this the 90s stuff listen it's not paul smith it's not mark silvestri it's not brett blevins it's not bill sinkevich it's very different and the 90s is my least apart from the lost decade as jonathan put it in house <laughs> of x the 90s is also my like weak point Tony Oliveira is always saying, like, you'd never know it from listening to your podcast, but the 90s was when the X-Men was at its most popular. And I'm like, yeah, well, I like to talk about stories that are good. That's, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, I've never connected with the 90s stuff, and it's not my, like, air, my forte. Simonson's still on the book at this point, and I actually think that the Liefeld and Simonson period is quite good. This is the arc that longtime fans of Cerebral will remember from the Sunfire episode, because this is the Madripoor arc featuring fan favorite Cerebro recurring character Dragoness, a character who does not matter at all, but is very memorable in this story, which I read when I was like 12, because she ties up Boom Boom and Sunfire and Cannonball in her like evil drug lair, and Cannonball seduces her in order to trick her and get the key off her so that he can free them. But Tabby is so incensed by him kissing Dragoness that she goes, let me show you how a real woman kisses and just grabs him and plants one on him while she's like still chained up. She like swings herself over while he's freeing her. This is a fun little moment. And she suddenly is like, wow, you didn't tell me you could kiss like that. You didn't ask. <laughs> <laughs> this is where their romance kind of kicks off, which I do like for them. And I think it's a little sad that it's so completely out of the question now, because I think that they would be fun together again now. But he's now a family man. He's he is retired. very much a family man. But I also think things never would have worked out long term. Oh, they, for no, the two they of absolutely them. wouldn't have. That's why she blows it up later in the yeah like this is very much one of those relationships you get into when you're young and someone's just there <laughs> mm -hmm. and like a situation ship that's yes. what it is 
it's very like high school sweethearts in that way where it's like, well, you only had like 50 people of the opposite sex to choose from. Right. Right. I, I know a grand total of like 10 <laughs> men. <laughs> right. So, well, two of them are gay. Yeah. And in this case, right. It's a very small class. That leads pretty directly into Extinction Agenda, the franchise-wide event that is Louise Simonson's last New Mutants story. Boom Boom, Richter, Wolfsbane, and Warlock are captured by the Genosian magistrates. This is when Wolfsbane gets turned into a mutate slave. Uh, see the Wolfsbane episode. It's the beginning of her really rough decade. Oh, yeah. Two decades. Three decades, honestly. <laughs> Still counting, still counting. But for Boom Boom, it's kind of a, a nice heroic moment. She has no powers and still manages to do pretty well. This is when she meets Jubilee. And as we noted earlier, they have an immediate tension between Frenemies, them because they're yeah. very similar characters. A part of me wonders if like both characters existed before this point. They've had numerous appearances by, by this point in the comics. And Louise obviously knew that. Part of me wonders if she was kind of writing to the audience and knowing that these two characters get compared a lot. Oh, it's very meta because Jubilee at this point has only existed for like a year. And a lot of people, I'm sure at the time, were like, isn't this just Boom Boom, but yeah. Chinese American? And it's like, no, they're different. And we're going to show you how in these scenes. And however many years later, I'm still doing the same at Exterminators. Yeah. <laughs> no, they're different. Let they're me different. show you I how. They're different. I swear to God, right. Yeah. The big moment for Boom Boom here. Well, her dad gets brought back in. Yeah. She doesn't see this because she's a prisoner at the time. But the news is interviewing the families of these imprisoned kids because it's become like Manoli Weatherell reporting on NPR. Yeah, like, it's, it's become, become a big like, news story. you know, an international incident. Yes. It's in the headlines. When they get to Tabby's father, he's like, that little tramp ran away from home and she deserves what she gets. Just a piece of shit. Just the worst. Absolute piece of shit. As if we didn't know that already from the fact that he's abusive. He beat his daughter. Yeah, she's introduced with a black eye because he beat the hell out of her because she was a mutant. So. Yeah. And I I got the impression that that was just the most recent beating. That isn't the first time he's acted out or, or done something reprehensible. The vibe I get is that he was pretty reprehensible, but that it was the first time that he physically hit her and that that was why she ran away. But you also could just think it was the just the worst time and that it had happened. Yeah, I, I thought it was the worst time because the kind of real life convention that it follows is coming out as queer and getting kicked out of your house. Absolutely. Her mutant powers manifested. Her dad found out, beat the hell out of her and she had to leave or else he's going to kill her. This is an interesting point of comparison between her and Skids because this is the other way she ate Skids' lunch is that Skids' backstory is her father was abusive. She manifested a force field to protect herself to deflect his fists, he killed her mother, and she ran away. It's gruesome. It's She's horrifying. Like with her mom's body. And she can't help because she can't turn off the force field. Yes. And her mom's just dying and is like, run away, take the pearls, run take away. Take the pearls. And you see like the broken pearl necklace and the blood on the floor. It is gruesome. It is yeah. so dark. And then later Rusty breaks the necklace and is like, doesn't get why Skids is so upset. 
Yeah. And Jean, God love her, is not telepathic at this point, which is, explains a lot of Jean's behavior at X Factor. But she's like, well, this is good practice, skids. Why don't you try to pick up those pearls? Get on your knees. Get on your hands and knees, kid. Just do it. And Skids is like, no. You bitch. <laughs> you fucking bitch. Heartless bitch. So that's basically like they have the same backstory, which is ran away from my abusive dad when my powers manifested and wound up with a supervillain team in Skids' case, it's the Morlocks and Mask. And yeah. in Boom Boom's case, it's the Vanisher and his teen cadre of girl gang thieves. <laughs> yeah. So that was just another way that Boom Boom kind of elbowed Skids out of the way. Which is a very Boom Boom thing to do. But I think their powers are symbolic of that, too, because their response to the abuse, the more dramatic comic book character response is to create explosions to get away as opposed to up oh, i have a force field you can't touch me boom boom is an active rather than reactive it's character. outwards rather than inwards right. or static which doesn't yeah. make her better than skids it's just that is something that superhero comic readers are more likely to respond to immediately yeah the more yeah. active character i mean i would argue that skids is ostensibly the better character in that she's a better person yes she's more palatable she's sweeter she's kinder she's educated but her personality feels a bit muted mm -hmm. boom boom's really like in your face and yeah. you know exactly who she is right off the bat she has catchphrases once boom boom and richter come in and you have these four characters and then you're merging the casts it's very obvious which two to keep if you're only going to add two yes. of them to the cast of the New Mutants. Yes. After Extinction Agenda, the entire team of New Mutants besides Sam and Tabby quits for various reasons. Warlock is murdered by Cameron Hodge. Tabby actually spreads Warlock's ashes on Doug's grave, which is a scene that I remember reading as a kid and being like, jeez. Rain has been turned into a mutate, and so now she's stuck in her wolf form, and she decides she's going to stay on Genosha and help them rebuild so that she can, like, find herself again. Later, it will turn out that she's also slave-bonded to Havoc. Go back to the Rain episode. We just don't have to get into that again. Richter is like, I don't accept that, and runs away in the night to go to Genosha to try and convince her otherwise. Sunspot leaves the team because his father has been killed, and so he decides that he needs to go back to Brazil and take care of their business. And so it's just now Sam and Tabby, because Danny had stayed behind in Asgard, Ilyana died in the Inferno. The whole cast is now gone as Liefeld begins transitioning the book in the last two issues of New Mutants into X-Force. This is when Cable loops in Domino, although it's actually copycat. Don't worry about it. Feral and Shatterstar and Warpath join up. This is kind of what establishes Cannonball and Boom Boom, or Boomer, as she quickly rechristens herself, which is, in retrospect, very funny, but at the time did not mean what it means now. Yeah, didn't mean the same thing. They are set up as kind of the Scott and Gene of the team in the sense that they're the holdovers of the previous team, the way that Scott and Gene are with the all-new, all-different Second Genesis team in the 70s. So they're sort of the standard bearers of, like, what this team is, and they're now surrounded by all these new characters, or in the case of Warpath, 
and Siren, characters who've been supporting recurring characters but have never been major characters in a book up to this point, they're also a romantic couple, so it's very much them at the center of the book. Sunspot rejoins the team pretty quickly, and then it becomes more of a triangle. And then Richter rejoins after Niciesa fully takes over the book. The early stuff with Liefeld, as Daryl Io and I talked about in the Feral episode, Boom Boom gets into it with Feral because Feral hurt Cannonball. Then they all fight Black Tom and the Juggernaut at the World Trade Center, and the Twin Towers are extremely damaged, which leads to X-Force, as they're now called, being branded terrorists, because that'll happen when you attack the World Trade Center, allegedly. (laughs) So they're like, okay, well, now we're on the run with Cable. That's when Toad's evil mutants attack. This is the team with Sauron and Fantasia and the Blob. Sauron kills Sam in battle, which is obviously devastating to Tabby. But then Sam wakes up because he's an external, but he's not. They retcon this later, so don't worry about that either. Honestly, never worry about the externals until after the 2019 soft reboot, House of X Empires of Timber writer Jonathan Hickman, because Teeny <laughs> reinvented them entirely and they make much more sense now. So just read Excalibur 12 or whatever that was. It's 12, I think. But otherwise, don't really sweat it. In these stories, the implication is that Cable came back in time in the first place, like both to fight Strife, but also to find the 11th external, who is Sam. And it's like, okay, whatever. Shortly thereafter, Liefeld quits Marvel to help co-found Image. Fabian Nicieza, who had been scripting X-Force based on Rob's outlines and plots, becomes the writer entirely. X-Force is attacked by Weapon Prime, which is a team-up between S.H.I.E.L.D. and the evil Canadian government from Alpha Flight. They're like, let's catch these terrorists. Richter has joined Weapon Prime because he believes that Cable murdered his father. It was Strife, spoiler alert. So he's like, oh my god, my friends have been fully indoctrinated by this guy and yada yada yada. But Cable goes missing in the big fight. So Tabby's like, well, Richter, Cable's gone. Like, just come with us. So he does. And he rejoins the team there. Siren joins after the stuff with Black Tom and Juggernaut. This all leads into Executioner's Song, where Strife poses Cable, tries to assassinate Charles Xavier at the Lila Cheney concert, infects him with a techno-organic virus. The big thing for Boom Boom here is that Brainwash Skids kicks her in the face and breaks her jaw. And so for a while, <laughs> she has her jaw wired shut and can only talk like this. And she's a very talkative character. And like the speech bubbles are written like you can only sort of understand what she's saying. <laughs> it's very funny. The panel of Skids kicking Boom Boom in the face is really funny because Boom Boom goes, Skids, we'll help you. And it's just at that moment, Skids just boots her in the fucking face with like a roundhouse and it says, cracked. And she goes, ow, you broke my jaw. Can your force field stop time bomb who was blending <laughs> point blank? You're a toy. She holds out her hand. They all go to try and help the situation, but the X-Men are like, X-Force, they're Cable's minions now, so they imprison them in the basement for a while for the rest of the event. After everything's been cleared up, Sam gives his big speech with the mouse in his hand, and it's like, you need to set us free, Professor Xavier, to let us make our own choices, because Cable and Strife are both (laughs) apparently killed at the end of Executioner's Song. This is when Tabby has her confrontation with Lila Cheney. She's like, you're a fucking has-been. Like, you know, and Lila's like, is this about Sam? Because I'm over it. It's fine. Like, he's too young. I'm too busy. Have fun. 
which is helpful to their relationship because, you know, when Lila came back from the apparent dead, Tabby was concerned about that. Yeah, she gives them her blessing. Yes. After that, Sam decides it's time for Tabby to go home and meet his mom. Meet his family. He brings Which is her what he did with Lila once. And that's how you know that Sam is serious about a girl. <laughs> Unfortunately, he brings her home just in time for The Young Hunt, which is a Nicieza crossover between his two books, well, two of the books he was writing at the time anyway, X-Force and New Warriors, where the upstarts decide that they are going to hunt down the remaining New Mutants and Hellions who have not either died in other events or already died in the Upstarts game because Fitzroy killed most of the Hellions as part of the Upstarts game. He was actually going after Emma Frost and they were collateral damage, but, you know, that'll right. happen. Story of Emma's life. Yeah. Emma was worth a lot of points. Cat's Eye, God lover, not worth that many points in the Upstarts game. But, you know, if you're on your way to Emma, you might as well kill all her students. That is a thing that everybody loves to do. To be fair, this is the first time it happens. <laughs> it just, just keeps happening to her after that. They team up with the new warriors. Everything turns out okay. This is also the arc that introduces Paige, Sam's sister, in advance of Phalanx Covenant and Generation X. Introduces her at least as like a teenager who has mutant powers, as opposed to like a little child from like the raw manual or whatever it was that yeah. they named her. This is also an important bonding experience for Tabby and Sam because Tabby has been really stressed out about Sam being immortal. She's going to grow old and die. And he's like the vampire. Suddenly they're Buffy and Angel basically. And they decide that like, all that matters is today. Like nothing is promised. Like, let's just love each other for now. Shortly thereafter, the Phalanx Covenant kicks off. I've been tracking like, when do Jubilee and Boom Boom hang out because of exterminators? And this is another moment is like when they visit Paige at the Massachusetts Academy, Boom Boom and Jubilee go shopping together. And it's clear that, like, they're cool. It's fine. <laughs> it's okay that you've replaced me as the fun exploding character. And now I am the Jean Grey of X-Force, which is not... Like, the thing about Boom Boom is the 90s is her biggest moment as a character in terms of prominence. But it's also the time in which she is the least fun. Yes, I think that that hurt her as a character because when you take away the scrappy, nasty, hard edges of her, she just becomes less interesting to me, at least. Polish something until it's featureless. Yeah. They turn her into skids. I mean, that's what's really wild. She shows up and replaces skids because she's this dynamic, exciting character. And then they just steadily transform her into and the skids role on the team. Her. Yeah. Yeah. There's a good scene around this time this is right before Nisiesa is fired from the book and replaced by Jeff Loeb, where they're in Manhattan and she comes across this young woman named Priscilla, who is a streetwalker in Greenwich Village, really down on her luck. And Tabby is like, if I hadn't wound up with X Factor, that would be me. She gives Priscilla a card from like a children's charity that can help her. Maybe. And Priscilla's like, thanks, but no thanks, basically. But like Tabby tried, you know? Yeah. It's a nice little moment. That's a character I wouldn't... There are so many like weird little one-off characters that you'd have to explain who they were if you brought them back, right? Which is always the problem. Yeah. But seeing like that Boom Boom did help that girl might be like a fun revisit at some point or like a flashback story or something. Because it never goes anywhere because Fabian got fired off the book and it never, the character never appears again. Then the Age of Apocalypse happens. 
don't worry about it. We don't talk about that on this show unless it's super important <laughs> and it's not for Boom Boom. And then when we come back, it's the lobe run on X-Force where Boom Boom's role is primarily... <sighs> feeding Sabretooth milk from a bowl? Yes. So Sabretooth like, can't talk, right? He's been like lobotomized in battle with Wolverine. Yeah, he's like comatose. Wolverine rammed a claw through his brain and now Xavier and Jean are trying to rehabilitate him like rebuild his like higher functions of his brain but also help him with psychic therapy so he's not a serial killer and rapist anymore so Boom Boom was like hey new friend and she plays his nursemaid basically she's like boy I have daddy issues I can work out by helping this older man who's and she a just famous talks abuser to him who can't talk to me or touch me right yeah she talks to him the entire time like soliloquizes to this presumably comatose villain yeah she brings him like bowls of milk like an animal that he can like slurp at but they're yeah. not it's mostly like he's safe, except everyone around her is like, he's not, though, because if he does get better, suddenly you're going to be in a lot of trouble if you're down there with him. You're first in his line of fire. Yeah. And you're exactly the kind of girl he likes to rape and murder famously. So maybe don't hang out in the basement with him, feeding him and telling him your secrets. But she does. But she does. <laughs> At one point, the X-Force kids have an intervention with her where they're like, you absolutely need to stop because we're not sure if this is real or if he's faking it. And he is cunning enough, a bad guy and a predator to be lulling us all into a false sense of security. Like he has a healing factor. He will get better eventually. And it does turn out that is exactly correct because That's basically exactly the case. Charles yeah. gives up eventually and is like this psychic therapy isn't working he still is like an evil killer or whatever like it's not gonna work it's revealed that he had been like playing tabby you know yeah they basically ship him off to val cooper's containment facility because that's what you do because <laughs> val's our friend now in the 90s so we can just do that because it's the clinton administration now and val is still the president's advisor so now she's not a Reaganite, so she's a little bit nicer. Boom Boom is like, I just need to go see him one last time. He's been my friend. And he's totally been faking for the last several weeks. He gets Tabby to unchain him and release him. Yeah, by tricking her because she has told him all of these secrets about her like horrible past because he couldn't respond. And so he starts taunting her with them. And she shoots the time bombs at him and he uses the time bombs to break his restraints. Then he basically like mortally wounds Betsy who attacks him to defend Boom Boom. This story annoys me because Betsy beat Sabretooth before she was a ninja. So I think that she should have won again here. But maybe she's overconfident because she's a ninja now. She loses real bad. This leads into the Crimson Dawn storyline. Do not worry about it but she gets better kind of boom boom is left pretty devastated by how much she fucked this one up <laughs> like that was a bad call by old tabby smith oh no how could i have known that he would turn on me like this it's not like everyone told me that that would happen and it's not I like literally everyone around because you i have you. like oppositional defiant disorder or something <laughs> from like being a teen <laughs> runaway and like i just i have like too much childhood trauma to listen to any authority figure 
one thing that's interesting is during this period, like at when she's feeling really shitty about that and about how she handled the saber tooth thing, she's like, I should go see my actual dad. Oh yeah. She pays a visit to her dad. And is this when they reconcile? Yeah. They have like actually a yeah. nice moment and he tells her, and this is fully shocking and actually is good evidence for your point that he probably was abusive earlier than we see because this is such an abusive thing to do. He, reveals to her in a retcon because we learned that like her mother died but that doesn't really make sense because in the initial origin story we saw her mother so it's now retcon established that that was a stepmother and that her mother died when she was young and that she witnessed it or whatever in this scene he's like she actually didn't die she left me and i told you that she was dead that's fucked up yeah <laughs> so um that's some crazy shit honestly but she's you know happy to hear it i guess well i feel like from this man she is accepting crumbs yeah like any kind of apology right that's just where her head's at he's gonna tell her more details but sebastian shaw and holocaust the character more recently called nemesis attack because Shaw is trying to kidnap and brainwash X-Force. Do not worry about it. Uh, <laughs> and basically her father ends up in a coma. So that doesn't get super resolved. So she's like denied this cathartic moment that she was about to have. Where it's like, where is my mother or whatever? And this is what sets her off so dramatically that she becomes a meltdown. meltdown. She has the famous trope moment that lots of female characters get where she cuts her hair short in the mirror. Like, because it's a new me. She does a little pixie cut. I don't hate the meltdown design. It's very 90s, but you know, it's fine. I do, like I said earlier, love the code name. But the big thing is she starts practicing more with her powers here. And she learns for the first time how to like pull the bomb back after she's released it, which she's never been able to do before, which is a pretty big power up since many times in this publication history she has released a bomb and then gone oops i shouldn't have done that so like you know yeah. nice that she now can absorb them back in she also just like starts being a real fucking bitch to everyone which makes sense given yes. the book like there right. i feel my opinion is that the reason she gets skidsified and then bitchified bitch pilled this feels like they realize that she had become boring and they yeah make her edgy for the night yeah they had to make her edgy because it's x-force they can't just have a lovable mischievous she can't be a scamp like she was in character. the 80s because exactly. that's not the book so instead that's now she's book. an extreme 90s character. exactly yeah and x-force is like in general kind of the grittier response to x-factor and x-men yeah they're a paramilitary group they're an escalation of the x-men the same way the mlf or an escalation of the brotherhood. right exactly so more violent and this is also i think where boom boom gets really good at single hand combat mm -hmm. she learns <laughs> like, how to like really fucking fight trained fucking fighter uh it's just that we don't usually see her fall back on hand-to-hand -hand combat because it, when you can just explode people away from you, why wouldn't you? But 
that's when this happens and makes sense given X-Force and what they're up to. Yeah. Shortly after this transformation, they fight Celine in a story where Celine tells them that Cannonball was never an external and they should ask Cable why he lied, which we still have never answered to this day. It is just Jeff Loeb going, I hate this plot and I'm killing them all off besides Celine and Apocalypse and we're moving on. That at least helps their relationship because... They're not worried about him being immortal anymore. So that's nice for them. But what doesn't help their relationship is when she hooks up is with Bobby Is what DeCosta. happens the minute John <laughs> Francis Moore takes over the book. She hooks up with Sunspot. Yeah. So Cable is like, we all have to go underground because of Operation Zero Tolerance. And X-Force is like, no, actually. And we're going to go on our road trip era and have fun. Meanwhile, Cannonball has been promoted to the X-Men. And this is where their relationship starts to fracture because he is... He's so busy now as like a newly minted official X-Men member, doesn't have time for Boom Boom. And so she's like, all right, well, I'm going to hook up with Sunspot about it, I guess. Yeah, she decides basically this is too healthy and I'm going to blow it up. Which, as we've said before, is her response for all conflict resolution. (laughs) I'm going to blow it up. (laughs) In one way or another. The road trip team, which is Tabby, Sunspot, Danny Moonstar, Warpath, and Siren, go off on their road trip. They end up at Fake Burning Man, where they fight Celine again. This is the karma is gay issue. Vita just revisited this in New Mutants 30 with the flashback to Karma's pink hair moment and worked Shatterstar into the story, which was fun. We didn't see how Karma achieved that look previously. (laughs) (laughs) She and Beto have grown closer and closer and closer over the course of the road trip, and they just start making out on the dance floor. And then they're like, shit, 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 we can't do... I mean, the implication to me is that they're drunk, but, like, I don't think it goes there in the comic itself. But, like, they're horny, and they're drunk, and we're both hot, and we like each other, and Sam hasn't spoken to you in, like, two weeks or whatever, because he's busy with the X-Men, And they make out and they're like, we can't do that again. We can't, we can't, we can't, we can't. Except then abruptly Sam shows up as a surprise because he wants to hang out with all his friends and his girlfriend. And that just makes them both really uncomfortable since they are his girlfriend and his best friend. So they're like kind of avoiding him. And then despite themselves, they end up kissing again. And this time he walks in, which is not great. My girlfriend and my best friend. (laughs) This really shatters his relationship with Sunspot for a while, actually. And is pretty much the end of him and Tabby in a serious way. They'll, like, reconcile. They get back together later in the Pete Wisdom period, but it's, like, not too much damage has kind of been done, you know? Yeah, you're hooking up with your ex. Right. Part of why Tabby had come to like Beto in this period is because his trust fund got frozen and he was broke. And so she like got to know him more as himself and not as like this flashy playboy throwing money all over the place. When his assets become liquid again and he can just like throw his wallet around, she starts to lose interest. Yeah, like he's no longer relatable to her. And they both kind of realize that they were just horny. And now that they've actually fucked, it's like they don't like each other that much (laughs) it happens yeah it absolutely happens and it gets even worse because then cannonball comes back and rejoins the team this is where her father comes back for a very odd 
moment. I mean, I love the the JFM run on X Force. I think it's really, really good. I wish it was better collected. They're starting to collect it finally in Epic Collections, but somewhere close to it's not ninety one is the one where Siren gets her throat slit. So it's a couple issues before that, like late eighties. The road trip ends and they decide to like hang out in San Francisco for a while. And Tabby's dad lives there now with his new wife, his fourth wife, who has with him joined Scientology. I mean, it's called the Triune Understanding Movement. It's a Kurt Busiek Avengers thing, but they like worship aliens. It's like very much, I think, a riff on Scientology. It leads to the reunion between them becoming awkward because he's just like very weird now. And in front of his new wife, he basically pretends that they're this like loving family. And Tabby's just like, fuck you, and like leaves. That's when the new Hellions plot happens. Siren gets her throat slit. Sunspot and Tabby break up because she's just like, what are we doing at this point? Like, this is crazy. And then before they can resolve it, he gets picked up by the INS because of Rainfire. Go back to the Sunspot episode, but like, he is wanted for being Rainfire and he gets deported. <laughs> she's just just like okay that's when they go to genosha with pete wisdom and then there's the reunion between tabby and beto which is when he's with celine as part of her new hellfire club this plot doesn't really go anywhere because basically the whole line gets fully rebooted when morrison comes in for the most part so yeah. like this plot just doesn't really go anywhere this is when <laughs> the high evolutionary, I cannot escape from the high evolutionary on this podcast, the Siege of Wondegore has come up in the last like three episodes. He briefly turns off everybody's mutant powers worldwide. There's that moment. So Cannonball falls out of the sky and Boom Boom is like, oh my God. And like jumps off a cliff to save him by like jumping into the bay. She like stays with him at the hospital and it gets them back together. But like you were saying, it's more of a fucking your ex vibe like it doesn't feel great and it doesn't feel like it's built to last yeah this is when warren ellis takes over the book pete wisdom becomes their new mentor this is an era of x-force you basically just super don't have to worry about it gets canceled around the time morrison comes on x-men and replaced by the peter milligan and mike allred book that is better known today as ecstatics but in the early stories, it's called X-Force. The gimmick is that these reality TV type celebutant heroes, their corporate overseer has bought the rights to the name X-Force. And there's a fun little plot where the 90s X-Force team, like the late 90s team, fights them to try and like restore their reputation or whatever, which leads to the rebrand into X-Statics. But that's kind of the end for Tabby as a major character in the x-men line for quite a while for uh, ever really like until krakoa i mean she has she's in cable and x-force she pops up a couple times basically so just like to briefly go through them she pops up in frank terry's weapon x where she's working with cable as part of his resistance to fight the neverland concentration camp and all of that but it doesn't go super well for them and then she's in the Liefeld and Niciesa X-Force miniseries where they fight the Scorn and Spiral and all of that. She has a cool power moment there where she channels a time bomb through Shatterstar's sword, which is kind of fun. Sort of like Black Tom Cassidy style, like the way that he would blast energy through his shillelagh back in the day. Yeah. But 
that's just not a miniseries I super suggest you read. And then she falls totally into limbo until Ellis, who had clearly enjoyed writing the character when he wrote X-Wars, picks her up for Next Wave. Next Wave is one of her, I think, most beloved appearances. Next Wave in general is beloved. One of my favorite Marvel titles. I mean, obviously, like, choose your own adventure on how comfortable you feel buying work by Warren Ellis right now. He's, like, in mediation with the women who he mistreated. And it's, you know, it's an ongoing process. But this book, the premise of it, basically, this shows you how far she's fallen from the height of her 90s appearances, because the premise is these are characters who no one is using. These are D-listers. They have fallen off. It's Monica Rambeau, who no one had used in serious ways since Roger Stern. Elsa Bloodstone. Machine Man, the captain who represents all of the various like obscure characters who are captain such and such who don't matter at all but is a new character in my head i think of him as captain slur because that's how he's introduced yes yeah the premise of the book is basically this bunch of loser formerly important characters are hired to do various funny missions it's a meta kind of satirical book joe casada who was editor-in-chief at the time maintained that it was an alternate continuity because the book was so crazy that people started going like how is this but but it was so popular that it became impossible to keep it in a separate continuity so this is a real pivot point for tabby because the way she's characterized in this book is very different very valley girl a total airhead she's basically paris hilton or kim kardashian lindsay lohan kimberly stewart one of those celebutants of the moment and taken to the point where yeah she's like a complete dumbass but she has like a low cunning that's very funny she's sneaky she has street smarts yeah and she says a cab like she (laughs) which is fun (laughs) but much like with machine man and monica and elsa the version of tabby from next wave became to most lay people and casual comics fans the definitive version yeah so pretty much every story that boom boom has appeared in since next wave has been about threading the needle between the co-leader of x-force 90s characterization of boom boom and the dumbass sloppy instagram influencer before that was even a thing type from next wave yeah she's mostly a cameo queen in the san francisco and utopia eras the most notable thing that happens is she gets killed off in the kyle and yost x-force the leper queen shoots her in the head and everyone i remember this people were outraged and i was like guys they're literally time traveling right now like X-Force couldn't save her because they are in the middle of a time travel storyline. I am sure it's going to be okay. And sure enough, at the end of the storyline, X-23 jumps back in time, just in time to kill the Leper Queen and save Tabby. And uh, that's kind of it. Like, she's again a cameo queen during Utopia stuff. She fights a Predator X at one point, which like, good for her. And then she really doesn't do much until the hopeless cable in Mm X-Force where she pops up. That's in 2013. It's part of like the all new Marvel now. Let's rewind for a second to 2009 because this is something I specifically wanted to bring up because I hate it so much. So there's Astonishing Tales with Boom Boom and Elsa Bloodstone or as I like to call it, 
boom boom and elsa do not pass the bechdel test (laughs) and it retcons her relationship with the beyonder and gives them like a really passionate kiss oh no yeah and i i just hate it so much i just wanted to say that i also hate that (laughs) she's 13 at that time yeah no i mean and they age her up like soap opera style pretty quickly but like in that story she's a very explicit 13 yeah I actually also want to go back because I forgot during the JFM era, the road trip era, but like late, late in John Francis Moore's tenure, when they're fighting Celine again, I think it's one of the, it's like they get locked in a dream at one point. Basically, they all start experiencing their past in like a nasty way. And we get a flashback to Tabby's time on the streets. And this is like the most explicit sex work vibing moment from her, apart from the scene that Nisiesa gives her with the character we know is a sex worker. There was this guy who was attacking the girls on the street and he sliced up a friend of hers and then he came after her and she killed him in self-defense. But it's something that she's now lived with. I really like that retcon to her backstory because In the transition to X-Force, part of the skidsification is that she becomes much more cautious about how she uses her bombs than she was in X-Factor. And the idea that she's grappling with having blown this guy's head off makes sense to me. And I also just think that her grittier backstory is one of the appealing things about the character I like when we dig into a little. One of my favorite things about Ed Brisson's work with her in Krakoa was when she just casually reveals during the Cosmar arc that she speaks Russian because she's like, or at least like conversational Russian because like she presumably worked for the Russian mafia at some point. Like, you know, she ran jobs for somebody who, you know, it's fun. She's like, yeah, you pick stuff up on the street. That's stuff about the character that's fun. But so that 2009 storyline happens. I have not read that. Astonishing Tales. That sounds crazy. It's not my favorite. It's on Marvel Unlimited. Yeah, no, I'm like, I'm like already Googling it because I, I got to read that because that's, that's wild. I did not know that. Like, again, the Beyonder is just not really in my wheelhouse. So I'm not keeping super close track on him at all times. But yeah, she teams up with Cable's team in Cable and X-Force. This is after AVX and there are two x-force books there's sam humphrey's uncanny x-force which is psylocke and storm's team and then the cable and x-force book written by Dennis hopeless and is like cable and dr nemesis and forge and domino and colossus is my recollection and then boom boom ends up helping them on a couple missions which brings her back into kind of that space she turns up in the Bendis run randomly as one of the utopians who are like living in the ruins of utopia, but that plot doesn't go anywhere. But like, I guess go back to the karma episode. I think we talk about it there briefly. The weirdest part there is mask is also part of that group. And the idea that boom, boom and mask are living in harmony is like very funny to me because of their history. Especially pre Kroa. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of the vibe now, but back then, back then that was still the time when like, so much of the conflict escalation happens because heroes don't discuss stuff and they just see each other or they see a nemesis and like it's on site they start fighting yeah it's just one of those things that is an odd moment where it feels like we just threw a bunch of characters we weren't using into this group shot and it's not super logical but that's fine it's whatever it happens after that she's in ed brisson's stuff before krakoa but the big 
resurgence of Boom Boom, I would say, is on Krakoa in Brisson's arc of New Mutants that alternated with Jonathan's. I would say that it it's sooner than that, even. It would be New Mutants' Dead Souls. You're right. I skipped right over Dead Souls. See, that decade is tough for me. I like Dead Souls, though. Dead Souls is great. Dead Souls is fun. That's Matthew Rosenberg. And that's fun because she gets to be part of the team with Ilyana, which hasn't happened before because she joined the team after Inferno. So it's nice to see her considered a classic New Mutants character, even though, as I said at the top of the episode, she and Richter, who's also in Dead Souls, are sort of in between. So seeing them interact with like magic and karma is fun. Super fun. Because it's not really characters that they had a ton of history with. But it helps set them up for now when it would make sense to have, like, you want that class of students to all know each other. So it's good to just establish that they do. And really great characterization in Mm -hmm. Dead Souls. It's one of the better, like, in terms of pulling her back from Next Wave and closer to the X-Men character, but keeping the fun factor of Next Wave, Dead Souls is really good at that. It is, yeah. So yeah, that was a good moment for her right before the soft reboot. Yes. And then in Ed Brisson's New Mutants, which alternates with Hickman's, Hickman has taken the entire classic New Mutants cast. Into space. Into space besides Magma because Magma. And then (laughs) Boom Boom and Richter because they're not like classic, classic New Mutants. Richter is in Teeny's Excalibur and Boom Boom and Magma therefore become sort of spotlight characters in Brisson's issues. The first arc is more of a Boom Boom arc. It's the one in Nebraska with Beak and Angel from New X-Men. It's Boom Boom and Armor and some other characters who are not in space fighting bigots and whatnot. Boom Boom to me was the standout of those issues. Oh, absolutely. You can tell that Ed Brisson loves Boom Boom. Yes. He is very much a champion of that character. He writes her tougher. A bit jaded. Yeah. Like, definitely... You get the vibe now, and I thought Al picked up on this nicely in Cable Reloaded, the one shot, when she and Lila and Sam were on that little Exterminators one-off team together. She now is like Sam's high school girlfriend who it didn't really work out for. Yeah. Like Sam has this great life, and Tabby is still binge drinking at nightclubs at 30. Yeah, she's kind of... Squandering and it's like and kind of enough really sure already what to do with herself yeah. yeah spiritually 30 obviously like those new mutants characters are probably more like 25 but no age discourse point is she's sort of pointedly not invited on the space trip right like it doesn't feel like they said don't invite tabby but they didn't invite her and she kind of feels a way about that which i would too yeah same yeah but she's fun. Like you get more again, like I, I said earlier, she talks a lot about like her criminal past in very casual asides, which is the funniest way to do backstory stuff. Oh yeah. Just like drop these. Sage is bombs. the master of that. Yeah. When she's like, that one time I was sold to a harem and everyone's like, What? And then she's like, When I was a child in the Balkans during the war, and everyone's like, What? When I was at the Hellfire Club, I was a double agent. Yeah, like that and you know, that's the big one, obviously. But that's sort of the most fun way. To, to give out kernels of backstory and Boom's a fun character to do it with because so much of that was off the page because it was Comics Code era and this teen runaway doing crimes is not something you're going to show a ton of. Yeah. 
so there's definitely a huge amount of latitude in for uh, retconning it out, it out but yeah. we're making it up via retcon yeah and that is really it before exterminator she was part of the first x-men vote and she did better than cannonball which i was amused by because i did not anticipate did. that at all oh i did well, see, I thought Cannonball was going to do really well because he was such a big character in the 90s. But I do think that Jonathan wrote a really, like, strong ending for that character. And Boom Boom is a character people were eager to see more of, like, right now. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah, she she did pretty well in that vote. The totals from this year were never released. Like, the, the rank order was never released. And I'm curious because I just love data like that. But we got, like, the ordered 10 the first time out and boom boom was as i recall i forget i forget guys honestly i think maybe she was fourth place with tempo was fifth yeah yeah so that's pretty good and after that she gives a fun little secret x-men story kind of like the aftermath of the vote thing that one shot she's really fun in that super fun tini got that line through s and p that's like beto saying i love boom boom because she's sexy and i love banshee because he's sexy which yeah. i love that bit but also she has the most iconic line of that issue which is when she says my aunt gina was a car model and forge asks if she has any pics i just love that because car model is such a specific de classe kind of model to be and the idea that gina smith was like the hottest car model in roanoke virginia is very very funny <laughs> to me and that's no disrespect if you're listening and you are a car model by trade get paid honey print deals are print deals i'm just saying it's not vogue <laughs> it's not even playboy it's like pose on this muscle car in a bikini and forge of course is like can I see that? I'd like to see that. <laughs> Which is fun. Then she pivots into Exterminators. What was your primary approach now that we've sort of gone over her whole history? How did you approach writing this character fresh and new? Um, well, I, I chose her because like I knew she wasn't up to anything at the time. And she's a fun character. And I also just really enjoy pitting together characters that might have similar power sets because exploring the nuances of how those power sets actually differ is really interesting to me it's fun going into writing her like just as strongly as i feel about dazzler the vampire slayer being her final form like that is her one true north bimbo boom boom is is my dazzler the vampire slayer like and it's it's not that she's actually stupid it's that she does performative femininity and it takes the shape of like the bimbofication of boom boom she's doing it because if she decides how she presents herself then you don't get to decide who she is yeah exactly she's in control of the narrative and meanwhile though of course it's all bravado like she's a really vulnerable person on the inside and all she wants is to be loved and to be accepted and she's been feeling really lonely especially after not being included in the mission uh right. to space in it's like you took mutants. chamber and you didn't invite me right right like she's <laughs> that genuinely hurt her yeah and of course it's this new new era for the x-men and krakoa they're all living on an island together even villains like former x-men villains are there right I'd love to see her talk to the Vanisher, actually. Yeah, yeah. 
he would be there. He's been working at S.W.O.R.D. He's on the teleport team, according to Al's org chart. Yeah, there's a ton of, like, when you think about who all's on the island. Oh, yeah. There are two elephants, two sentient elephants on the island. Mamomax and the one that the Chris created an extreme, The problematic right? one. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> the one that can make people horny. Yes. I don't That's remember his, his power. name off the top of my head. There were a lot of horniness powers in Extreme X-Men. It was a very horny post-Comics Code pre-Disney book. Yeah. <laughs> um. There were two sentient elephant mutants living on the island. And yeah, a lot of really fun, awkward conversations to be had. One of those awkward, fun conversations, it has to be about the beyonder between Dazzler and Boom Boom. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think now is a good time to get into the questions. We got a lot of questions for this episode, so I won't be able to read them all. But thank you for writing in, and I hope that we entertain you with our answers to these questions. You guys always write such great stuff. And I know that a lot of you were excited to write in to talk to Leah. It's always exciting when one of the current writers is on the show. Silas Lilly writes, Hi, Connor and guest. As a semi-Southern, sometimes rural Virginia-raised gay, Tabby is near and dear to my heart. Her story kind of mirrors my own in the sense that we both got the hell out of Virginia as soon as an opportunity presented itself. My question here is if the girl was born and raised in Roanoke, Virginia, fully mountain, middle-of-nowhere territory, how did she escape her Claremontian apostrophe-ridden accent? In my head, she should have something akin to a Tatiana Snatch Game-style Britney voice, complete with y'alls abounding. Surely sucking face with Cannonball brought the Appalachia back into play. No? Appreciate all that you do. Thank you. Silas Lily, smash catch him on the Discord. I think it's because she was written by Louise Simonson mostly. Yeah. And I also have a kind of a perfect real world parallel to this. I was born and raised in Mississippi. Mm -hmm. Can you tell by listening to me? Sure can. <laughs> it, it happens. And it's one of those things where like when I'm tired or drunk, I start sounding mm -hmm. like I'm from Mississippi. But my mom also put me in speech and dialect classes growing up because she has a really strong Southern accent and she didn't want people to treat me the way that they treat her. There's a stigma to that accent for sure. Yeah, because of the way that she speaks. So I sort of carry that accent with me, but I don't always unpack it. And this is like my natural speaking voice. Boom Boom, who is very self-aware. Yeah, she's also a performer and a chameleon in that way. I think she yes, would intentionally exactly. work on killing Very her. aware of how people react to the way that she sounds when it's more Southern versus kind of accentless. She would change accordingly. She would adapt. And I also think that she hitchhiked out of, like, to literally answer the question, how did she get out of Roanoke, yeah. Virginia? He hitchhiked. For sure. Because that was a thing people just did. <laughs> like, yeah. And we see her hitchhiking in her first appearance. Right. Like, it's it's a thing. You think about it and you're like, you know, a lot of people went missing because you would just hitchhike. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's not like she wouldn't be able to handle herself. No, if, of course if she would have been try she, to get she could explode yeah. things. Yeah. But just in real life, it's like hitchhiking. That was just a thing people did. And now unimaginable. I mean, I guess Uber is kind of a form of hitchhiking, but they're at least registered with a company like their name is on file. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I would also say go back to the Rogue episode I did with Cass Morris because she's from Virginia 
and we talk about this exact thing. And Rogue is from Mississippi. Well, right. We talk, and we're talking about that. And she talks about how, like, my accent is a little bit subtle. Like, you know, she, she does. She lets it out a little bit more. But she's like, when you're from Virginia in particular, because it is near D.C., like, it's the top of the South, right? I, I was going to say, as I'm, I'm from the deep you're South, the like deep capital South. D, capital yeah. S, deep South. And I don't consider Rami, Virginia I the South. I don't know what to do. <laughs> right. Like, it's different and it's a softer accent sometimes it's more genteel yes it's like i think of the next step down in terms of like considered genteel is like georgia you know it's like that kind of yeah like, I, I, like literally in, in it's literally down it's but it's also yeah. like it's more southern but it's still seen as kind of classy like because yes. these accents are upper class. crust yeah. And the Mississippi accent is not is not seen as classy. Right. Not at all. <laughs> and neither is Sam's accent. Kentucky is thick. It's like this. It's just yeah. a very different accent. But yeah, no, I think that mostly the answer is that she was on the street and didn't want to be seen as a hillbilly. So she worked as hard as she could to kill it. Yeah, absolutely. Sween McDervish writes, Dear Connor, what a delight to hear Leah is to be your guest because it was her casting North Star in his first lead role since the 90s that brought me back to comics. And it was your North Star episode that brought me to your podcast. Well, that's cute. After Alpha Flight, the second comic series I ever picked up off a spinner rack was the Fallen Angels miniseries, which led me to the New Mutants and then the X-Men. My boom boom question is as follows. Tabitha is one of at least three Marvel characters that are seemingly modeled on either Cindy Lauper or Madonna, the others being Skids and Purple Girl, a.k.a. Persuasion. Which of these iconic 80s girl power figures do you think Boom Boom most resembles? And who would win the karaoke contest? Tabitha, Sally, or Kara Kilgrave? Thank you both for everything you do. Sweet. I think that Boom Boom is more Madonna and Skids is more Cindy Lauper, but they're both kind of a mashup. Yeah, I can see that. They're representative of the era. I am not a purple girl expert, so I can't really speak to that. I've just read enough of Mantlo's Alpha Flight to be like, this character is strange. Um, but like, talk about problematic horniness powers, because uh, she's also very explicitly 13. In terms of the karaoke contest, my... A head cannon would be that Boom Boom cannot really sing. Same. Yeah. I th I actually think I just answered a question like this for an interview about it. It's funnier if like she's out with Dazzler and can't and is like fucking tone deaf. Like that's funnier. Right, right, right. But like wants to do karaoke anyway because it's fun, not because she can sing. Yeah. Whereas I think Skids probably can sing. Can sing. I, yep. This is exactly what I was going to say too. I'm glad All we're right. on the I, same I don't know what here. the interview was. Yeah. So Tabby, she can't sing, but she will do karaoke. Right. Especially when she's with Dazzler because she knows that it's gonna drive dazzler nuts when she's like flat or out of key and singing horribly on purpose to antagonize her friend and also there's no pressure to be good at karaoke if you're there with a professional right. singer because you know she's gonna wow the crowd so like you're fine you know you just right. have fun with it this is the question that i was asked on a recent podcast somebody asked me what their karaoke song choices would be mm. I think Boom Boom would choose a hip hop song. I, I think she would do yes. like I Wish by Skilo and she would pour her whole heart into it. Or like if she was drunk enough, I could see her having like a Kesha moment. But like ironically, but I feel not like that's too on the nose. It is very, like, but like 
maybe Uffy, like maybe not literally Kesha, but like something that speaks singy. You know what I mean? Yes, 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 exactly. Unlock it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's actually a question about her musical taste, I think, in the doc later. Oh, okay. So then we'll, we'll, get, we'll get that. I have yeah. a lot to say about that, too. I'm sure you do, because you are a playlist queen after my own heart. I knew that we were meant to be like true friends when we both put the Perfume Genius remix of Charlie XCX's Good Ones on our Instagram yes. stories, like the same. The way. superior version of that song. Simply better. Yeah. It is uh, better. <laughs> <laughs> to answer your question, though, Sween, Kara Kilgrave would win the contest because she has pheromones that make people like her that's her power so <laughs> she shouldn't really participate in the talent contest because it's not really fair daniel mizell writes hello esteemed connor and guest i first want to do the obligatory thank you this podcast is amazing and has radicalized me into an x-men fan i just started vidiala's new mutants and i'm loving it and of course the amazing and accepting community that's cropped up around your podcast but more seriously i want to thank you and your guests for being unapologetically yourselves because hearing all the different queer and lgbtq people and their perspectives on the podcast has finally helped me with being able to accept my own sexuality and come out which was a long time coming so i'm eternally grateful for you and this podcast and helping me on that journey well that's crazy you did that for you, but I'm glad I could help. Now on to my actual question. Why does Boom Boom have such a bad name? Like, could no one think of anything better? I get it's part of the charm of the character, and it's believable that she'd name herself that in-universe. But whenever I hear it, all I can think of is the Adventure Time episode where baby Finn fell on the leaf. Do you think her lack of creativity when it comes to names has stopped her from becoming a big character? And do you think the joke of her name has led to her being relegated to a comic relief character or a stereotypical dumb blonde? No hate to Boom Boom, and thank you for everything. Dan, Danos on the Discord. P.S. I just want to say thank you to Leah Williams as well because volume one of her x-factor is what sold me on getting into comics for good and i'm loving the journey so thank you that's a lovely letter it is oh first of all i don't think that she's just a comedic relief character as as we've discussed you right know, she's actually got a lot of there's pathos to the character yeah yeah and i also don't dislike the name boom boom i, think I it's like funny. it but also, famously, it's why Warren Ellis chose her for Next Wave. He gave an interview where he was just like, I was thinking about, like, here are some characters nobody's using. Like, let me look at a list. He's like, the name Boom Boom has always just been so funny to me. And when he was writing her, she was Meltdown. So he brought her back and was like, Boom Boom, and we're going to do it. And he leaned into the dumb blonde comic relief factor. Yeah. And also the fact that she's had a million names. Like 500 code names. Right? They make fun of it. Yeah. Yeah. The thing is that this is an in-story thing. She has tried to rebrand herself a lot and it never sticks because Boom Boom is too fun. And so it always comes back around to Boom Boom. Exactly. I, I think it's a fun name. I think it's got like a nice consonance and, and staccato rhythm to it. Like Bam Bam from the Flintstones, mm -hmm. you know, it's memorable. Or Vroom Vroom by Charlie XCX. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just to bring it back to place of Charlie. But wait, yeah, there's it's a specific fun. word for that when you repeat another word, um, a certain emphasis. I can't remember what it is. I saw it on Depths of Wikipedia one time. And I can't think of that off the top of my head, but I would say that it has good assonance, the vowel sound repeating. Mm -hmm. Like, um, um is appealing. And like, it's assonance and consonance. I mean, here it's the same word twice, but like, the reason that rhymes appeal is because, like, the boom boom room, there's a, an assonance to that that's fun. Or va va voom has consonance, which is when the consonant repeats rather than the vowel. Like, va va voom is three Vs. Pee pee is yes, another one. There you go. That's also <laughs> one. 
Aaron Lasfer writes, hello, Connor and Leah. I know I'm cutting it close, but hopefully this email slips in under the wire for Tabby questions. Honestly, she'd want me to procrastinate, wouldn't she? I have to admit, I'm not super familiar with Tabitha, but I've been thinking about her power a lot. I noticed most energy-based mutants transmute and redirect energy, like Dazzler, Gambit, or Sunspot. But as far as I can tell, Boom Boom creates her time bombs out of thin air. Is that how her power works? Does she create energy? I know comic science is a funny thing, but it seems like that kind of power could have almost Omega-level applications if applied broadly. Has she ever tried making plasma constructs other than bombs? I'd ask outside the box ways tabby should try applying her powers but i assume if leah has an answer to that she'd rather save it for a book thanks aaron good instinct yeah it is something that gets addressed in exterminators actually the fact that she's creating matter yeah because that's crazy the other characters are all aware of this and yes it does have omega level implications that's not to say wiki people that she's an omega level mutant don't update the page no, no. Nor do we see that application in Exterminators, not from Boom Boom anyway. To my knowledge, I haven't seen her make a different shape. One time in the Ellis run on X-Force, Pete Wisdom is training them like super hard for Black Ops and she learns how to make like laser beams, basically, like plasma blasts. But she's never done it again because it's not as cool. Like, the point of the character, she has this distinctive time bomb power. So you don't want to just make her zap lady. It's just, like, not as fun. Yeah. But that's it, as far as... She hasn't made, like, Green Lantern constructs or anything like that. Sorry, I was looking up the term for <laughs> when you repeat a word twice. A tautonym is, is what it's called. Like, pee-pee. There you go. Or boom-boom. Grammar lesson for today. But also, especially after Ellis gave her the catchphrase in Next Wave, the tick-tick-tick-boom... It's like you never want her to do anything but tick, 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 boom ever again, really. I'm going to send you the link to Tottenham because it's funny. That's what Boom Boom is. She's a Tottenham. Please do. We're talking about oh, her powers. So, yes, she is creating matter. And I find that absolutely fascinating because it's impossible. Right. That does violate the laws of physics pretty hard. Yeah. Yeah. So it's amazing that she does that and she can control not only the shape and apparently size or output of it, but the detonation time on it. Mm -hmm. I can't remember what issue of Exterminators this is in, but in one of the issues, a as of yet unrevealed additional antagonist is coming up with a dossier on the women mm -hmm. and just kind of like writing down their powers, everything that's known about them. He keeps having to add like an addendum of upper limit unknown. Like it is not known what the limits of this power is because unlike other characters who like feel the wear and tear of the use of their abilities, these women, they could do this all day, literally. And there is no upper range to how big the explosives could be. I love that. And I'm excited to see more, honestly. Professor Luke Lander of Northeastern University writes, Hello, Connor, an esteemed guest. Was any character hurt more by the end of the 90s X-Force series than Boomer? Besides, of course, Jesse Aronson. That's Jesse Bedlam, who, yeah, that was a rough one for him. <laughs> she and Proudstar are the only two characters to be on the team from its start to its finish, so she was a huge 90s X-Men character. But it seems like Tabby's the only one from the team to really get left by the wayside after the series ends. 
Sam, Bobby, and Danny are part of Zeb Wells' New Mutants run and get used in a number of series here and there. Jimmy Proudstar was in the next X-Force series. Richter and Shatterstar were in X-Factor for a long time. Domino gets frequently used, but not much for Tabby. It's even a joke twice in both Volume 5 of X-Force and in the current New Mutants that the rest of the team forgets to bring her along when they go off on their big missions. When she does appear, it's effectively like none of the character growth she experienced in 90s X-Force happened. Readers can make fun of her progression into Boomer and Meltdown, but she does grow and mature throughout that series. Straight through the Counter X Spire, which I loved, even if no one else did. And it feels like writers for the last 20 years wanted to ignore all her evolution so she would just be a simple ditz again. Why did she slip through the cracks for so long? And why did 10 years of her character development just go to waste? Thanks for all you've done with the podcast and bringing such a supportive queer community together. Can't wait for the Jesse Aronson episode sure to come someday. Professor Luke Lantier, Dante Shepard on the Discord. Well, thank you, Professor, for writing in. I like that your name is Lantier because that's very similar to Lenzao, which means landowner is my understanding so i assume that landowner means something similar not to blow up your spot i mean i don't know how much land in germany you guys own but <laughs> i think there's two answers to this question well three answers really one is that x-force just fully got canceled in favor of ecstatics one is that jubilee ate her lunch with that cartoon and everything else that spun out of it in the popular imagination and one is she just didn't really fit anywhere in that moment so that early aughts moment you know yeah and this is something like this is the first thing that came to mind when i i heard your question bear in mind she was altered to fit the tone of the 90s book that she was in right her personality was changed in order to adapt her to x-force whereas the other characters already had their distinctive characterizations and boom boom when you take 90s x-force away is a very consistent character. <laughs> like, we're left with a character who, for her initial appearances, appealed to one audience, and then in the 90s, appealed to a different audience. So it becomes the job of the next writer to reconcile disparate versions of character into something more cohesive, which is kind of what we, we do now. Again, I don't think she's a ditz. I think she's uneducated, like legitimately... Right. She ran away at 13 and never again attended a traditional school. Her learning process, the way she learns things is through media, through the people around her. And in Exterminators, we we get some dumb blonde moments, but they're not necessarily earnest. She is doing it for laughs. She's doing it because she does have a weird sort of logic in what she's saying and it was fun to pair Jubilee and Boom Boom together, particularly in this aspect, because Jubilee can give her a hard time about it. But also, she kind of serves as a translator. Like when Boom Boom, she makes a logical leap that nobody else makes. Jubilee is like, okay, let's work backwards to see how, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Let's let's do that. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. She's kind of like an idiot savant in, in that way. I think a ditz or like a dumb blonde is reductive. <laughs> right. I don't think that there's a character, an X-Men character who fits that at all, let alone Boom Boom. I think that she just takes a sort of solace and comfort in play acting as a bimbo. 
Yeah, I think that it's a defense mechanism. And to answer the other part of your question, why did the characterization get thrown out? It's A, nobody really did like that Counter X era of X-Force. That's why it got canceled. And B, everybody liked Next Wave. Yeah. Next Wave was purposely not super beholden to the way people had been characterized before. For the entire cast. Yeah, yeah. it played Monica Rambo as much more jaded and cynical about the Avengers than she normally would be. It played Elsa Bloodstone as much more devil-may-care. Unhinged. Crazy action hero than she previously had been. It made Machine Man a completely different character to the point where later writers retconned that it's a different Machine Man who doesn't know that, but like they came up with a reason why the classic Machine Man was someone else. Boom Boom is a character who was so underused elsewhere that that just became the dominant characterization. Yep. And the thing about ongoing continuity is I know that as fans, we think every story matters, but they don't have equal weight is the thing. When you're a writer yeah. coming onto a book, you have to think about with a character who has this much history, it's like 40 years of stories. What are the key stories you want to bring out? What is the key characterization you want to bring out? What are the important moments with right. her? Like, what are the important stories with her? Not necessarily where she's just like on a team and delivering one-liners and a part of the action, but like the stories about her that drive her character forward. And fans can always point out some old story that contradicts a current story's characterization or power use or whatever, but it's not the gotcha of the writers that they often think that it is because the writers are aware of stories that they're not referencing usually and are choosing to leave that out because if we talk about this in the very first episode of this podcast with Teeny, you have to decide who your version of the character is and craft an argument based on existing continuity as to why your version is a valid version. But, right. We're, we're not playing karaoke. Right. Is the thing. We are trying to do something new and additive and inventive and I like the disparate aspects of Boom Boom. I like the fact that she's kind of brash and abrasive, but also funny as hell and like genuinely a dumbass, but also kind of secretly a genius at the same time. Like, I, I love that about her. I think it's so fun to write, but it's not something that we're exploring in Exterminators because this is not a multifaceted book. Right. <laughs> I didn't want it to be a multifaceted book. I wanted to write cheesecake and I'm having a blast writing cheesecake. <laughs> so while we do see the other side of Boom Boom's personality in the last issue, it kind of comes full circle in a moment with Jubilee. In the other issues, she's like having fun. Right. And just kind of hanging out with her friends, even though it, it happens to be while they're battling bad guys that kind of thing jocelyn medistio writes hello connor esteemed guest boom boom's such a fun character but i wonder how much of her party girl bimbo character is authentic and how much of it is a posture she wears to keep herself at a distance she's opened herself up a few times but usually gets hurt i'm thinking of Sabretooth, especially here is there a side of tabby that we haven't fully seen and what would it take to get her to show it also how many times do you think she and domino have hooked up <laughs> thanks for all the work to make this wonderful show jocelyn <laughs> joss mads on the discord i have no comment on the tabby and domino of it all because i feel like it will invite age discourse but i get exactly where you're coming from 
as far as the posturing, I feel like that's what we've been talking about. So you, you got we've it. Discussed yeah. it at length at this point. It is absolutely possible. What do you think it would take to get her to open up more? And is that something we're going to see perhaps in future issues of exterminators? Yeah. Uh, like what, what I was just talking about in regards to the last issue, when we do see this other side to her, it's because an event has occurred that requires her to bring out her like caretaker side. Mm-hmm the genuine one which is something we've seen tabby do numerous times over the years she's got an enormous amount of empathy and like cares about other people so that is i think pretty much when you'll see her being her most like open vulnerable self these days Mm -hmm. because yeah otherwise she's got this like bimbo exterior a a projected front of performative femininity and it's a kind of armor that she wears on purpose to protect herself mm-hmm. josh hall bachner writes dear connor and leah super thrilled for this episode leah i completely adored the way the magic episode explored that character's complicated emotional life so deeply i'm super excited to have you guesting again on this show similarly what if magic and x factor five the first note the first, though not the last comic, where a story about wrong slide made me tear up, are two of my favorite single comic issues in recent memory, so I can't even describe how excited I've been waiting impatiently for Exterminators to kick off. I'm wondering about one particular element that's had some screen time in the Krakoa era. I think this started with Next Wave, but from then on when we've seen Boom Boom, it's often been with a bottle in hand, engaging in self-destructive binge drinking. From her origins, we know Tabby has some pretty intense childhood trauma that she hasn't fully dealt with, and a lot of the New Mutants era characters have felt a bit adrift adjusting to the world they find themselves in. So this isn't a wild development or anything. However, she hasn't really been written as someone who's an identified alcoholic with the gravity that that brings with it, like her former teammate Siren, or as someone who's really actively coping poorly with their life in a dangerous way, like poor Sage currently in X-Force. In fact, it's usually just played for laughs. So my question is, how does this fit into Tabby's personality in the current day? Should we view it as something worrisome that calls for intervention and maybe plot attention, or is it better off downplayed and left as a joke? Just in general, how much is being a joke overlaid on someone who can't get their life right? Tabitha's fate in life. Looking forward to y'all's thoughts on the subject. Josh Quincognito in the Discord. My thought on this is I don't think that Boom Boom is an alcoholic. I don't either. Yeah, I, I don't think that she is an alcoholic at all. The difference is she's a party girl. Right. She's occasionally a problem drinker. Like She binge drinks, but like... Yeah, yeah, like... I also binge drink sometimes at a party, and I am not an alcoholic. I have an eating disorder. That's a thing that I have. There are a lot of people out there in the world who have disordered eating habits that aren't the healthiest choices they could ever make, but they don't have an eating disorder. It's a different thing. It's always levels of anything, any kind of addiction. And in this case, I think that she abuses substances sometimes, but I don't think that she has a substance abuse problem. Yes, I would agree. So I think it works as a joke, and I think it works as a joke because there are characters like Siren and Sage where it's taken much more seriously. Where it's given the gravitas that it it deserves. Because for them, it's an addiction and a problem. Yeah, yeah. I also think Boom Boom exaggerates. Like, I think that in the first issue of Exterminators, which was like, I was about to crack open a six-pack home alone. I think she's kidding. Or at least, like, exaggerating for effect as part of, again, 
the defense mechanism she puts off of being this untouchable party girl. Yeah, like she's she's exaggerating for effect. She might have been having one beer. She's not going to drink a whole six pack. She's just saying that to shock Jubilee. Exactly. She was like chilling and having a beer doing her toenails because she wasn't like going anywhere or doing anything. And then the moment that Jubilee is like, we're going out later. That's when Boo Boo was like, Oh, okay. I'll pregame. And she does drink in earnest because, she because she's going she's out going with her out. friends. That's exactly. Different. And she thinks it's going to be like a, you know, a fun night out on the town. And then she shows up and then she's like, this place fucking sucks. Yeah. And meanwhile, it's like a mopey kind of, depressed evening well i also i live in west hollywood and i was just like i could have told her this wasn't real <laughs> because i i would have looked at this and been like first of all this place could never afford the rent on this property this has to be a super villainous front <laughs> yes yes and turns out it is <laughs> yes vampire problems henry mccoy writes wow henry mccoy <laughs> Henry McCoy writes, Hi, Connor and Leah. Longtime listener, first time caller. And I just want to start off and say how appreciative I am for this podcast. You helped me get back into monthly comics after I fell off at the beginning of the pandemic. I'm so excited for Exterminators. I was gutted when it got pushed back to September. X Factor was my favorite book of the dawn of X, and I'm still so, so frustrated it's over. My question today is about Boom Boom. I'm currently going through the Claremont run and just reached Secret Wars 2, an event that is certainly something. I was struck by how suicidal and depressed Boom Boom was, given how books like Next Wave have portrayed her since. I was wondering if her suicidality was ever really touched on again in any major way. Is it an aspect of her character that she's, for lack of a better term, dealt with? Do either of you think of her as a depressed or suicidal character in general, or as a character who self-harms? As someone who is depressed and has attempted suicide in the past, I'm of two minds about this. I feel like it could add an extra layer to the airhead persona she's sometimes written with, but I could also see it as something she's been able to grow from, especially since she's been out of her abusive house. Household. Apologies if my question's been answered in some big story I haven't read yet. Thank you again for making this podcast and for reading this. Every episode and the discussions you and your guests have always brighten my day and give me a new understanding of characters, especially when I've written them off or haven't read much of them. I hope I didn't send this in too late. Henry McCoy, they, them, theirs. P.S. I didn't pick my name. I was born with it. My parents aren't X-Men fans, but they did make it my destiny. LOL. That's so funny. That's amazing. At least you don't go by Hank. That would be a little harder, especially these days. To be <laughs> Here's what I would say. I think that there are a lot of teenagers in crisis who have suicidal ideation that they then grow out of when they're not a teenager in crisis. I think it was a very specific moment for her where she thought that she just had nowhere to go. I yeah, I was going to say something similar. Like I also have struggled with these things and have attempted when I was her age too and it's it's because you go through these situations and you are becoming like a fully realized person for the first time, but you don't have enough tools at your disposal in your emotional toolkit to deal with these things to cope with these things. So you're like an exposed nerve ending emotionally. And when bad things happen, it's like, there is no other way. There is no other option. I think that this, this is something that she was dealing with and it is always going to be there. You can't ever fully turn your back on those kinds of experiences or those kinds of feelings. It becomes a part of you, the patchwork quilt that you are as you grow older but it is 
definitely something that she is going to hide under her kind of, Mm -hmm. you know, extroverted exterior, her persona. My read is that she's moved beyond active ideation. That's not something that like happens in her day to day. But the fact that she once felt driven to that place is probably something she reflects on. Yeah, yeah. It would be something worth talking about if she and Dazzler ever talk about the Beyonder, actually. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think she's moved past the ideation and has developed a better coping toolkit. Mm-hmm. Well, arguably better. She's well, right. binge drinking. But we also, like, she then found a place to be, you know? Yes. And I think that that changed everything. Even if there are instances where she's not being included or that kind of thing, it doesn't carry the same sort of weight that it once did because she is her own person now. She lives for herself and her own enjoyment. She isn't fully, completely reliant on others the way that she was when she was 13. Mm -hmm. I agree. James Lafferty writes, hello, Connor and Leah. First of all, you're both so amazing. And you guys are also nice today. (laughs) First of all, you're both so amazing. Thank you for all that you contribute to the podcasting or comic book worlds and for always applying a proper queer lens to both of your works. My question is about signature looks, color theory, and the importance they can play in character recognition. With so many mutants on Krakoa now, it's very easy to confuse them without visual signifiers. Characters like Magma, Boom Boom, Dazzler, Husk, and Skids, for example, can seem interchangeable. Which blonde white girl is that again? I will point out... For the millionth time, the Dazzler is supposed to be a redhead. Someday. Someday she'll... <laughs> Strawberry blonde, yes, I would say. but like, I think she and Shatterstar should have the same hair color. Yeah, they should. They did an X Factor. I was like, I bet Leah gave that note. <laughs> <laughs> My question is, how important is it for a character to maintain a recognizable look if they're an easily mixed up character? And how much influence on that do the writer and artist have? Especially now, since characters are cycling through various past looks on Krakoa, is this a way to make a character stand out? Do we think playing on those nostalgic looks or maybe even making a new signature look could help a character in an ensemble? Tapa has had as many varied outfits as she has had code names. Standing out for her, in my mind, are the pink and dark magenta looks of early X-Force and her later pixie-cropped hair and vest combo with the green shades. If Tabby was to stand out, should she stick to those signature colors like the Claremont era gals did? Maybe always wear her green shades, which I do miss? Anyway, just curious to hear your thoughts. Thanks again for all you do. And until Tabby changes her codename to Boom Chicka Pop, make mine Cerebro. James, a.k.a. Nerdy Junk, on Twitter. For me, Boom Boom always should be wearing sunglasses and be in pink of some kind somewhere. Agreed. Yeah. To me, those are the parts that are most recognizable with her. Also, the sunglasses serve a practical effect. It's so she doesn't blind herself exploding with the time bombs. Right. So that's why she always has them. It's not like, you know, an impractical accessory. They they serve a purpose. But I love the exterminators look because it's different and it's casual clothes rather than a costume. But you know that's boom boom. The pink and the sunglasses, you know. Yeah, yeah. And it's super distinctive. And we were really happy with the way people connected with her new look right away and got obsessed with it. Because like I said before, I firmly believe that her final Pokemon evolution is performative bimbo i absolutely believe that i think that it is in the same spirit of what her original looks were coming from where it's very 
informed by pop culture. Yeah. The reason why she's not wearing those same clothes that she was wearing in the 80s. They're not on trend anymore. It's because they're not on trend anymore. And Boom Boom wants to be accepted. She wants to be admired. She wants to be wanted. She is not going to be coming out here in like old lady clothes and and looking out of place she's she's gonna come out in full force and put her mm-hmm. best foot forward and she has a good sense of fashion she always has she's always been really into clothes and into styling and that kind of thing she designed those costumes she designed the costume yeah. the exterminators and then i forgot to mention she uses the shiar machine to generate the capullo x-force costumes as well yeah yeah and now like she's living in krakoa where she has access to krakoan fibers and mm-hmm. can basically fabricate anything of her dreams so she's utilizing it to full effect They all are. The other thing I didn't say that I think is key is hair up. She had her hair down in Next Wave, but that was definitely the look at that moment. Like, she was also very on trend in that book visually in terms of, like, celebrity fashion. But in general, like, when she's first introduced, she has, like, the scrunchy ponytail that kind of just sticks up right when she's first introduced she has really short hair really really short hair that's true i'm thinking of like in the x factor era stuff she's got yeah the... yeah she's got a scrunchie and like a trapezoid ponytail and then in the 90s she just kind of has short hair in various styles but then i think since dead souls maybe i just feel like she's been doing a high pony a lot and i think that it felt like a good return to that silhouette from the 80s in a modern way and then the pigtails and exterminators are also like a good evolution of that because they're high pigtails yeah they're high pigtails hair on the top of her head like coming down or just sticking up but like there should be something yeah yeah to me, Boom Boom with long hair and tying it back are very much a part of her like performative femininity thing where long hair is associated with femininity and she's had short hair for practical reasons multiple times before because it's more practical in combat. It's more practical when you are a teenage runaway and on the streets and you don't want to get lice and that kind of thing. Like, So being able to keep up with the maintenance and the upkeep of having really long hair is is not something she takes for granted now i think and she enjoys like the different kinds of hairstyles she can do with it the reason why we don't have uniforms and exterminators is because we want to have fun playing dress up with the characters we want to put them in different outfits so we get some additional fun looks with boom boom and and jubilee and laura not so much Laura and Dazzler because they're just having fun with it. And I think we see the only times that we see boom, boom, her hair is always up. It goes from pigtails to high ponytail to kind of low casual pigtails in, in the end, the looks kind of stay consistent And to me, this is also integral to the look of her character. It is feminine and there's a sense of whimsy to it. Mm -hmm. The whimsy is imperative. Yeah, there needs to be something a little fanciful. That's why the meltdown look, while it's a perfectly fine look, doesn't really work for me because it's just like a vest and leather pants and like goggles. Like she's not. But again, for that time. It's on trend. For that book, it fits. It doesn't have the fun factor as opposed right. to the earlier X-Force costumes, like the boomer costumes, like the pink jumpsuits and stuff. 
and the leggings. Still fun. Yeah, yeah. Arno Fresnel writes, Dear Connor and Leah, Bonjour from the UK. First, I would like to say how much I love Leah's work ever since X-Men Black. Emma Frost and What If Magic, so I can't wait to read Exterminators. Very happy to see her name back on my pull list. My question about Boom Boom is about her love life. Now that Cannibal's married and Richter is gay, who will make our Tabitha swoon? Is she on the apps? When I picture Tabby using dating apps, I see her picking a few matches, going on a mission, drinking after the mission, and missing all those dates. Who would be a good match for her to actually attend one? Thank you very much, Arno. P.S. Connor, thank you for the wonderful podcast. I am rewatching Ally McBeal as I was a little baby gay who watched that show back in the day. And I can't wait for you and Alex to talk about this wild ride of a show. Yes, single female lawyer for me and Alex Abad-Santos, the Ali McBeal Revisit podcast is coming soon. Stay tuned. Stay tuned on social media. You will get the RSS feed as soon as I can give it to you. We're recording soon. New York Comic Con really threw my schedule off in terms of getting that together because I want to have a couple episodes in the bank before we start releasing as for your question i think leah probably can't answer because who she might want tabby to do well i'm gonna answer because this touches something that i'm currently writing and now i have to say that (laughs) right i'm currently working on a short for the x-men unlimited stuff on the app Mm -hmm. and it's a boom boom centric dating story where she's on the apps and going on dates okay well then enough said let's wait and see the comic (laughs) i think that sounds like a lot of fun i've already got that like on the books for the record and your question did not give me the (laughs) idea (laughs) legally speaking we must legally speaking i'm way ahead of you way ahead of you on that that's super cute though and that is a natural outgrowth of there's that one utopia era story where like she defeats a bad guy by like using face space which is like facebook and myspace and then like in next wave she's also like on her phone all the time so yeah of course and, she and would be like swiping randos. yeah yeah Spencer Graham writes, Firstly, I'd like to say to Leah, thank you for establishing that Shogo's mom has got it going on in this new series. Jubilee needs to take her rightful place among the roster of ex-MILFs. On to the question, what cut ideas for ex-Terminators were deemed too spicy for publishing? Sincerely, Perb on the Discord. Is there anything that was people were just like, you simply cannot do that? You got the piss in. There's one very notable, because for the most part, I am getting away with they put mature readers on it you can get away with exactly more. exactly and i didn't even find out about the mature rating until issue three and that's when it becomes really <laughs> obvious and i start like you're like, like oh a teenager well testing the boundaries yeah, the, yeah. the next three I'm are like okay mature real rating. rough yeah let's stress test the limits of a exactly. mature rating and it, it definitely absolutely 100 becomes obvious that i'm doing that in issue three and the one thing that we simply like could not do, no matter how I tried to to make it work, because it's such like a classic grindhouse thing to me, a prison shower scene in the women's facility. <laughs> and uh, I tried. I really did. I tried. <laughs> and instead, there's just like a reference to it happening. Gotcha. But that is such a classic trope of the genre, but like they would have their tits out the whole time. Exactly. Exactly. It's like an exploitation thing. And I knew that we couldn't show nudity, but I was like, what if if there's steam or like, like, yeah, there's like steam (laughs) or have you ever seen those foam parties? It's like that. Right. Yeah. It's a bubble shower. And Jordan was just like, no, no, (laughs) we cannot do that. Yeah, no. Fair enough. 
Fair play to Jordan, but that's a funny idea. But Josh, it is canon because they, they do Because they it reference up. it, so it did happen. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Josh Wolf writes, hello, Connor and esteemed guest, longtime listener, second time caller. Thanks for giving me some great perspective on Pyro last time. Okay, so I love Tabby because she's got that kind of messy, almost trashy, but I kind of hate to say that, kind of vibe. She's fun. I'm particularly excited to see her team up with Laura and Allie and Jubilee this year. That lineup is a dream come true for me. These questions have been open for a while, so some of them are from before the issue came out. That being said, Connor, I know you're a reality. TV lover and I feel like Tabby is the perfect X-Man to pick up and cast in a reality show can you imagine how desperate MTV TLC or Bravo would be to cast a mutant like her on something to get on the Krakoan buzz so my question is what reality show would you cast Tabby in personally I could see her having an absolutely wild knockdown drag out fight with an anti-mutant roommate on the real world followed by a couple seasons of the challenge until someone accuses her of using her powers to cheat at something anyway love the pod love you you're great bye Joshy yeah that was the first thing that came to mind like big brother or real world real world and then the real world leads you into the challenge or like road rules into the challenge or like x on the beach like yeah she's one of those mtv shows for sure yeah 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 but what i want it to be is love island <laughs> well i was gonna say what i really want it to be is a show that no longer exists but if we could travel in time i would want to cast her on rock of love with brett michaels oh 100 percent. she would she would have slain the competition yes. on Rock of Love. She'd be amazing on Rock of Love. If you are a Rock of Love head like me, listeners, you should check out Larry Shane Halls and Kerry O'Donnell, who do Sex Unique podcast. They did a series of recaps called Insatiable Bitch Goddesses, because that's what Brett Michaels says rock and roll is. It's a full recap of all three seasons of Rock of Love, including the infamous Rock of Love bus, and it is so funny you will cry. That's just a good reality TV podcast in general, if you haven't heard it. I was just at their live show last night at the Bowery Ballroom, which was amazing. But yeah, no, I think like those MTV challenge shows or like, yeah, a dating show would be super fun, but only one of the really fucked up dating shows like Love Island or Rock of Love or Temptation Island. Oh, that's the one I'm thinking Send of. her in Cannonball yeah. and Sunspot Temptation to Temptation Island. Temptation yeah. Island. Yeah. 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 Felipe Lopez writes, Dear Connor and Leah Williams, I'd like to thank you, Connor, for creating this queer-friendly space of X-Men discussion. These episodes always bring me joy. As an iBoy enthusiast, I could never miss the opportunity to also praise Leah for how she's written him on X-Factor. Seeing him be taken seriously as a contributing member of the team and also be allowed to be his own person outside of his powers felt like a dream come true for me. Talking about the star of this episode, Boom Boom. Out of all the characters, Tabitha seems to be the one who'd most likely take social media by storm. Her party girl personality would make for some great TikToks. My question is, could mutants ever gather enough popularity through social media to oppose institutions like Orcus through public outrage? Could Boom Boom become popular enough to inspire humans to backlash against Feylong Industries or the Phobos occupation? Love from Sunspot and Shark Girl's home country, Felipe. Well, good luck with that election, Felipe. Lula forever. Boom Boom would kill on TikTok. I mean, famously on our TikTok, by which I mean the Cerebro TikTok, there is a TikTok about Celine hiring Boom Boom to run Celine's TikTok. So check that out if you haven't because yes i think that she would be teaching all the older mutants how to maximize their social media i was branding. just gonna say she is absolutely the most adept with social media usage she'd be amazing on TikTok. a mutant circuit between boom boom and trinary would go viral every single day oh yeah i actually would love i mean i think that if x corp had gone on longer we might have seen stuff like this but i would love to see it factor into a storyline somewhere else the idea that the younger mutants i mean it would be a great new mutants plot like the idea that younger mutants can leverage that stuff yeah but like let's think about real world parallels here and how successful and beneficial 
social media campaigns have been to affect positive social change. In some instances, yes. And in some instances, no, because of existing hierarchical power structures and who's holding all the cards. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's probably also a lot of young conservative people who support Orcus. exactly there is like there's an like an alt-right opposite contingent yeah. also making tiktoks and exactly and cetera, so. exactly what i was gonna say like orcas also has their zoomers hominus verendi are probably all over tiktok yeah yeah and while boom boom might be trying to go viral with positive messaging about mutants Orcus is working overtime to get mutants canceled. And right. We just saw the get orchestrated ads that they're putting out. They know exactly what they're doing. Yeah. Ian S. writes, hey, Connor and fabulous guest. First time caller, so forgive me if this isn't great. Quick anecdote before my question. I discovered your podcast through the iconic dating Polaris is gay TikTok animatic back in June and immediately <laughs> binged every single episode. Fun fact, Emma Dumont thought that was funny. So Leah and I have both communicated about Polaris with Emma Dumont. She's amazing. Fabulous. <laughs> She's, I haven't actually spoken to her, but we have a mutual friend. And he was like, she thought that was funny. I was like, ooh, love that for me. I had always been a fan of the X-Men since I was younger, especially X-Men Evolution and the Wolverine and the X-Men animated series, but never read a single comic until listening to this podcast. Well, that kind of stuff really wow. makes me happy. I hear that sometimes and it just like delights me. When I first encountered Boom Boom, I knew she'd be iconic as she very much embodies the it girl of every decade she's in and her powers are cool as fuck. Tabby's an avid listener of music and is definitely on top of the hot new songs and artists. Who do you think are her favorite pop girlies? I see her as a huge Charlie XCX or Britney Spears stan. Do you think Tabby would have been part of the Free Britney movement? Yes, absolutely. She was all over Instagram about that. Thank you for keeping me entertained and keep up the great work. Make mine cerebro. Ian, what do you think? I'm just gonna let you go about like Tabby's taste in music because you sent me your playlist. I sent, yeah, I sent you my playlist. Playlisting and like music in general is a huge part of my creative process. It is integral. It is intrinsic to what I do. And the way that I choose songs for these playlists is not songs that remind me of characters but these are songs that i think the characters would be listening to mm -hmm. stuff that they think they would be into and so with tabitha i think that it is the biggest tell her taste in music i think it is the biggest tell she has that she is not all she appears to be charlie xcx is like the one of the first five songs on that playlist mm -hmm. but also you're getting a lot of like punk and rock and powerful female vocalists in there too i think that these would really, really resonate with Tabby because of all that she's been through, because she has so much of of this depth that that doesn't necessarily get explored on the page. I think that she would feel at home with that kind of music. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, when I say it's the biggest tell, I mean, like you look at this person and you think you're seeing like a bubblegum pop bimboed dumb blonde ditzy character and then you look at her playlist and it's like bad brains and joan jett like just a, a bunch of old school punk music it resonates with her like the clash i think that's that's what she really vibes with as far as pop goes i definitely think she'd be into charlie xcx but i think that most conventional mainstream pop wouldn't be her cup of tea no she likes i think she likes pop that 
is called indie pop but isn't actually indie like charlie xcx like it's on exactly like she she wants something real yeah she doesn't want something that is managed or kind of made more palatable to suit all audiences she wants something real and even with charlie she likes the mixtapes better than the albums which yes is simply correct most of the time but i love yeah yeah I'm looking at the playlist now. I also think she's a big female hip hop person. Like, I bet she loves the renaissance that's happening right now with women. Oh, absolutely. But to be honest, I think that Jubilee is the one who's all over that. I just feel like they're both rocking out to Flo Millie, like, constantly in the car together. You know what I mean? I still think Jubilee would be more into it, but Boom Boom. Well, it's Jubilee's car, perhaps. Right. Yeah. 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 (laughs) To me, Jubilee is the one who's like, Arca, Hyperpop, 100 Gax, sure. Flo Millie, Megan the Stallion, like that, that is Jubilee's bread and butter. And mm-hmm. Boom Boom likes that stuff and, and can get into it. But she wants something with a little more teeth to it. She she wants something that she can she can feel. I think she likes Mother Mother, mm. Fiona Apple. Blink 182. I'm looking at this. Ali X, I think she listens to. I'm a big Ali X head. Marina and T Rex, La Tigre. I feel like she liked Marina and then felt like Marina fell off. Yes. Yeah, all that stuff. I, I think she'd be into <laughs> Jasmine Bean. I think Marina just got a little too like self serious for her. That's not to say that the newer music is bad. I just think that she would have been like, it's enough already with your poetry. <laughs> Dazzler had to turn her on to it but she likes the new Jessie Ware album I mean, it's not that new anymore but like you know what I mean like the disco oh yeah Jessie Ware stuff any sort of like powerful female vocalist I think she gets really into Adele Donimus all she'll have a Florence and the Machine moment like yes yeah. yes she loves her chanteuses Robert Secundus writes, Dear Connor and Leah, what are your favorite Grindhouse movies? What would be Boom Boom's favorite Grindhouse movie? Best, Rob Secundus. I know we both love Faster Pussycat Kill Kill. A classic, yeah. An absolute absolute classic. classic. I love the Italian stuff, Suspiria, Argento, Baba. I love all of like the really weird lesbian vampire stuff. Like Vampiros Lesbos is the most famous one. It's Spanish. My favorite Grindhouse movie is probably Coffee with Pam Greer. Yeah, that was one that came to mind for me too. Another absolute classic. I actually feel like the one character missing from Exterminators is like Misty Knight, but she's not really an X-Men character. (laughs) And that would be why, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so Coffee kamikaze girls is another favorite and it's like fully on youtube now in its entirety if anyone wanted to watch it bitch slap blood feast switchblade sisters like these are all kind of yeah switchblade sisters classic anything john carpenter did all of the george romero stuff like if you're looking at horror Mm -hmm. all of Mm -hmm. those are great texas chainsaw massacre is usually called like the best grindhouse movie of them all but it's a little little too freaky for me i get a little too scared at texas yeah. massacre. i would say it's not 
good necessarily, but... Yeah, the thing about Grindhouse... Your mileage may vary, but The Last House on the Left is a classic of the genre. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's Wes Craven's remake of Ingmar Bergman's The Virgin Spring. It's a rape revenge movie, so just like FYI. I was going to say another one that I think is really great, but that some people really fucking hate is I Spit on Your Grave. Yes. Which is also a really famous rape revenge movie. Really hard to watch. (laughs) Really hard to watch, but Carol Clover... Like I said earlier, I did a media studies master's degree at the New School, and I did a whole class, a semester on exploitation cinema. Carol Clover's Men, Women, and Chainsaws, which is a book of theory that Matt Zoller Seitz recently republished, is super great and invented the term the final girl, which is used in a lot of scholarship now and also has just become like something people are aware of pop culturally. She writes a lot about I Spit on Your Grave as like a movie that's actually surprisingly feminist in some ways, despite being really an exploitation film yeah Yeah. (laughs) which is also true of some level of a lot of these films that's why they appeal that's why it's interesting to see a book like this written by a woman as a comic book because comics are a genre that have been very male dominated overall and this cinema genre has always been very male gazy. So to have a female gaze on this grindhouse superhero book and not just a female gaze but a queer female gaze exactly It's something that I'm really relishing being able to do, especially with the mature rating. Mm -hmm. It feels like a way to demonstrate, here's how you do this and you don't exploit the characters. Here's how you do this and you don't contribute to the marginalization of women. It's not for the benefit of men. Right. Last question, but there's two, so it's last questions. Brian Houston writes, hello, Connor and Leah, two dumb questions. One, is it a blessing or a curse that Tabby changed her codename before OK Boomer became a thing? Should the younger mutants still make this joke when Tabby tries to give them instructions? I would be shocked if Leah has not already written that into a script somewhere. I think it it has been written. Somewhere, probably, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think that happened somewhere. I, I can't remember where, but... It's ringing a bell for me, too. But the answer is, it's good that she did. It's good that she changed but it. But it absolutely, yeah, absolutely is something that all of the younger mutants should call her as a joke. Yeah. Two, for a character who detonates things, I find it surprising that Boom Boom hasn't upgraded her delivery system. Sure, she had wrist launchers for a hot minute in the 90s. She had a slingshot for a bit. And there was whatever the hell was going on with her powers in the Ellis run. That was the laser beams. But for most of her history, she creates a time bomb and just throws it. Why is that? Does she have a secondary mutation that gives her amazing baseball skills? Is it like Cronenberg's crash where she's erotically addicted to being near explosions? (laughs) I love that movie. That's a movie worth watching if you haven't seen it. That's amazing. Oh, the Criterion Collection just put out an edition. It's so good. Why is she still tossing bombs instead of firing them? Until Hickman returns to the X-Office with the soft reboot House of Gossamer, Powers of Bird Brain, Make Mine, Cerebro, Brian T.D. Mollusk on Discord. Well, you know that I am all for the return of gossamer but i want to write it so jonathan doesn't get to so here's the thing she throws them because it's more convenient in turning them into a projectile but she can generate time bombs from any part of her body so of course like nine times out of ten they're going to be coming out of her hands right because she's going to lob it at whatever her destination is She's got great aim over the years now because of it, but she can also suspend them in air, I think now, and Mm -hmm. she can make 
like a swarm of them around her and keep them suspended in air. I don't know how she does it, if she's just like drawing them back into her body, but pausing before they kind of reassimilate into her person or something like that. But I know that's something she can do. Right. She learned how to do that in the meltdown era. Yeah. So it's safer now than it was. But also, like, the real answer, much like Cyclops, and like, why don't we just fix Cyclops' brain injury? And it's like, because he's Cyclops. He shoots beams out of his visor because he's Cyclops. Boom, boom. Throws time bombs because she's boom, boom. That's what she does. She tick, 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 booms. And it's fun. So yeah. if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Well, Leah, thank you so much for being my guest. This has been a ton of fun, and it was nice to catch up a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Anytime you are welcome to come back, we should talk about who you might like to come back to do because it's always a treat. It'd be fun after Exterminator's wraps or when you have something, whatever's next coming down so that I can do my pre-order number one for you on something. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'm like, I want to do as much promo as I can, baby. <laughs> I was saying to Jerry, you know, I have not that much power in this world, but I do have a lot of followers on Twitter and a lot of people who listen to my X-Men podcast. So if I can use those powers for good, I always try to. Why don't you tell the listeners about what you've got coming up and plug anything you want to plug? Definitely stay tuned for more Exterminators. We've got four issues left to come out and they get progressively more unhinged and chaotic. <laughs> I can't Especially wait. once I learned about the mature rating that I was going to have in issue three. Mm -hmm. I'm really happy with how the book turned out. It feels like it's it's the most one of the most me books i think out there and after like trial of magneto and like the second half of x factor when things were no longer within my control it, it's really really nice being able to just have fun with a book and be in control over what's going on the page like it's awesome and i'm having an absolute blast pun intended <laughs> i've got a couple secret unannounced projects I can't mention yet but the Power Girl stuff for DC is also going to be a lot of fun and my tradition of writing chaotic blonde women continues it's going to be a blast it's going to be a great year for Leah Williams comics about blondes with huge knockers yeah if that's what you're in the market for <laughs> well boy howdy there's more coming <laughs> Where can they follow you? I mean, I'm sure they already do, but just for the record, on social media. On Twitter, I'm my monster is chic, C-H-I-C. On Instagram, I'm handaxe with an E. And on TikTok, I am X-Men Comics. I still can't believe that. That's really funny. <laughs> I don't use TikTok. I have someone running this Cerebra TikTok for me because I am too afraid that if I learn how to use TikTok, it will consume my life. And it also makes me feel ancient. I have to limit my usage of TikTok because the algorithm is too smart. It understands me too well. And Terrifying. I will just like flip through just the funniest fucking content. And then you're like, wait, I lost an hour. Yeah. Yeah. Like, where does the time even go? <laughs> I have exactly one viral TikTok and it's about another TikTok that went viral about like a, a Venom short story that I wrote that was also me kind of stress testing the sensors and seeing what I could get away with. It's pretty filthy, pretty perverted. So there's a viral TikTok about that. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, thank you again. This has been a real treat. You can follow Cerebro on Twitter and Instagram at CerebroCast. You can follow me on Twitter at DreamOfOrganon or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. You can find all of the episodes plus links to the merch store, the Discord server, and much, much more at CerebroCast.com, the official landing page for the podcast. For $5 a month at the House of Zaladine tier at Patreon.com slash CerebroCast, you can get an ad-free version of every episode the minute it comes out, plus exclusive access to the secret files, bonus episodes, including the weekly Claremont Marathon, which should be back on schedule now, I promise, and the new series that's coming up, worrying about it in which we tackle some of the thornier storylines in the history of the x-men the first episode will be about the black womb project and much much more like whatever other weird bonus episodes are coming down the pipe i i have promised that history of betsy and rachel episode with zoe tonnell and valentine smith that is coming i swear to god we've just been figuring out our schedules Thanks as always for listening, and until next time, everybody, bye bye. Bye. X Men, X Men. In the 21st century, people mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world.